Welcome back to another This Is Hardcore podcast. Before we get into other things, I just want to jump into some quick uh, advertising and notes, so to speak. First, from Code Orange, back inside the glass, an all-immersive environmental experience putting Code Orange at the center of an awe-inspiring virtual landscapes, where they will deliver an intense live stream performance in a way never before seen. Kicking off the show are Machine Girl, Year of the Knife playing Internal Incarceration in Full, and Jesus Peace, all playing brand new sets with a cinematic twist. This will be streaming October 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, you can check it out via their uh, Code Orange, T-O-T-H, uh, social medias. This is absolutely incredible. I know uh, we're going to get into it a very little bit on this episode, but this is like Transformers, Voltron, Matrix, all that shit rolled into a live metal hardcore performance that we are going to be treated to on Halloween at 4 p.m. Pretty sick, huh? All right, this one is from, oh, it's from us, Philly Hardcore Shows. Philly Hardcore Record Merch Swap. October 24th, hey man, that's tomorrow, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Piazza. Piazza is down at 2nd Gerard. It's uh, right near the um, where we were doing shows at Creep Records for people who don't know what the Piazza is. From Within Records, Dark Medicine, Streets of Hate, Nito, Vegan Baked Goods, uh, Labels. I know Preserving Underground Distro and other distros will be there. People are going to be selling personal collections. Essentially, Bob Wilson is putting together like a swap meet, flea market, hangout for everybody from Philly Hardcore. Uh, wear a mask. Bring out a zine, make some cookies, just come and actually be social and, you know, be smart. Stay six feet away, wear a fucking mask, and uh, support. Kind of cool that the first time we've done any kind of like legit ads, it's for stuff that I like. Um, speaking of which, which is more like podcast related stuff, um, thank you for telling me your thoughts on the titles. And where they should be. There was a pretty good amount of uh, people hit me back. And I rolling off the interaction. Hit me up on social media. A couple people had said, hey, uh, if you start a Patreon, I throw you a couple bucks. Um, the, the podcasts that I support the most don't have a Patreon. I have done some investigation. Asked some friends who do do Patreon. And um, I don't know if we're ready for it. I don't know if it's worth it, but uh, hit me up on the social as you guys have before. Let me know your thoughts on it. I really don't think I would do anything where I would take a portion of any of these interviews and put them behind a paywall. I probably would just record more stuff solely for Patreon users. Seems to be more of in line with what makes sense for Patreon, but I don't know if I'm really ready for that. But since we're talking about it, Here's that's my thoughts on it, and uh, give me your input, please. Rolling into our guest, it is important to understand that I have been a friend and a supporter, and we have created some kind of symbiotic growth through Code becoming a band of note, Hey Five Six releasing Codes. This is hardcore set. And that really exploding, and then the way that they carried themselves from the time where they were Code Orange kids, 
into just being code orange. We have all kind of grown together and I have a very good personal friendship with Jamie and a lot of love for the band. But this conversation goes in a couple different directions. We're not really addressing a lot of the stuff that is more pertinent to the now. This is more about a how did it all get going? This is a good how, why, and give some people who are fans who weren't there at the very beginning or just everybody a little insight on some of the grind. And I hope it gives people a better appreciation and understanding just to the origin of this crazy band. And I'm sure by the time you're done listening to this long-ass podcast, you'll have a better understanding and appreciation of one of the most dedicated, obsessive, and uh, entertaining human beings that I know and am lucky to call a friend, Jamie Morgan. So let's roll into that. So I'm bringing to the podcast Jamie Morgan of Code Orange. And I had the opportunity to speak with him for the first time probably, I'd say, the summer or the spring of 2012. And yes, the drive and confidence that you exuded as you were standing in the middle of North Philadelphia at a scary <laughs> row home where I was convinced that you would probably be chopped up and sold. Um, and I could see the crazy look in your eye that you are already determined to be like. I'm going to fucking take over this whole world. And it's one of the, the things that is lasting in you. And no matter how many times we've communicated and how close we've become, I'm always reminded of the confidence and your drive. And it's unsettling to weaker people because they seek confidence as ego. And I've come to believe that those with like a focused confidence can overcome anything. And that's how I like to start this off. Where do you think at your earliest memory that you were building that like world domination confidence room. I mean, I think it's gone through different stages. I think at that point um, we were definitely, there's, there's always been a confidence in what it is we're putting out there artistically, maybe just a blind confidence. And I can, attribute I was, a lot. I was literally just speaking of Jamie Morgan, the captain of the ship. No, like, yeah, yeah. This- was this something that you got? I mean, obviously, was this something that you brought to Code Orange or was this something that you was born out of the excitement of the creation of this project? Well, I think that's what, yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say, which is like in the art, we were always confident in our own personal selves. I think that's taken a lot more time, you know? So I always felt confident in my guys around me and my group that we were doing the best that we could and that uh, we were going to keep raising the bar. But yeah, I mean, personally, that's, com- I mean, a lot of that confidence has come, you know, through not just through the band, but just through years of experience of doing this thing. But yeah, I mean, there's always been more than, more than just confidence. It's just, there's always been what you kind of said, which is a drive to, uh, to push it to the limit, you know, and that's kind of what always and like I was going to say, blind, you know, being from where we're from, Pittsburgh, we weren't surrounded by so many artists that we saw that were like, quote unquote, making it or anything. So that wasn't really anything that came into our mind. It was more just about 
like being as good as we could be on that stage. And that, that definitely, you know, I can even remember being in, being in high school and feeling so feeling, uh, you know, there, there would be other people wouldn't really get what we were doing like musically because really it was horrible. But now I see, but at the time I was like, I just don't get it. Cause I just feel this so much and nobody feels it. And uh, except my guys who I'm still with, you know, so uh, I think the band has grown that over time and, and, you know, other things in life. But yeah, I mean, we always had the drive, even when I met you, you know, and, and uh, I think though, you know, our little experience, not really, just, not only just living in Philadelphia, which was pretty short lived, but well, let's, let's get, to, we can get, we can get to that. I was more or yeah. less just trying to understand you because it, it's unsettling as a dude who is meeting a younger group of people. And I was coming to your house to give out some flyers for uh, some show that we were going to do with you. Do you remember we were in trouble with you a little bit? I, I'm, I'm not sure about the, that, but I, 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 uh, let's, remind me, let me refresh me, refresh me on what I did. Why what, what was sure. I you were pissed and because we okay here's what happened and i didn't think you'd remember this i wanted to ambush you with it to be honest but uh you were pissed a little bit because we came and we like we're gonna play a show that you had booked that was an awesome show i think it was with give and some other bands and the first thing we do when we got here was booked like three other shows like immediately around that absolutely show. I, that, all and right. i remember you calling me and I basically said to you, and and you you encouraged this, but I agreed. I was like, bring us the fucking flyers, and we will fire this whole fucking city if we can still play the show. And you were like, all right, cool. And you brought them, and that was the whole beginning of the whole thing. Let me uh, backstory on the perspective that I have, and I still share in different degrees. So if you're a younger band and you're really trying to get out there, there is a paradoxical situation where you're both supposed to play as many shows as possible to get your name out. We're not overlapping yourself so that way you're not able to bring people who you are associated with to these shows. And if anybody had listened to our podcast with Kevin Castle, you'll understand that there was a time and a place where every small show counted and every person at the door counted because these hardcore shows are still small in, 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 in the larger scheme of things. And sure. I'll be one of the first people to tell you. And as I said, on the Kevin podcast, that a promoter's job is not to put bands on a stage and make money from them. It's to grow their scene, support their scene and help bands in all stages with continuing, whether it's beginning or continuing their successes. So the drive was there. You're trying to play a ton of shows. And I was like, all right, these motherfuckers yeah. are hungry. Totally with that yeah. part. But you're overlapping yourself when you're still brand new. And there's a special, like, there's a special thing about a newer band where people are like, oh, this is new. I want to try this. So you would cut yourself already thin when you first got here. And so I I I love that you brought that to my attention because it kind of explains how I felt about it. And Obviously, it didn't ruin our relationship. It only uh, no, it actually it. no, yeah, no. Honestly, galvanize it. Not only that, that is something that it's not really. It's not only from that situation, but we've carried that same mentality because I honestly, and that was something I couldn't even convey to you then. But it's like I agree with this. The thing is, 
we have no fucking friends and don't know anybody. So some <laughs> people asked us to play. I, I believe it was, I honestly think it was one of Bob Wilson's band. It was some house show that had like wrong answer and other people on it. And they asked us to play it like in the suburbs or something. And, uh, and there's actually a funny story about that. The first time, uh, the first time I ever really met like Bob, Bob Wilson, who if people don't know, uh what fucking bands is he in now but he's mother mercy he's been in every band he's the so and and scourge of the philadelphia suburbs exactly and other people that we we ain't gonna name but that were rolling with him at the time the first time we met those guys was or saw those guys was we were walking through temple campus and they were all kind of squatted up on temple campus uh reba went there so we were all hanging out and i think one of i think reba was wearing like a youth of today shirt or something and bob denies this shit but basically it was him uh a couple other people we ain't gonna say and they basically laughed at us and like clowned us now listen listen this is where god this is where this is where i you know um i i joke around with bob but the one thing that I think that I will always not take credit for, but have pride in is how that gentleman came from being an obnoxious, aggressive uh, teenager into the strong promoter man that he is now. Oh, I agree. And I at that, and at, no, 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 no. Let me just go through my thing. And so he is also, especially in that time frame when all those French street straight edge, which is what that was, uh, they lived all, on French street in uh, temple campus, mm-hmm. they were still in the immaturity stage of being like, we're the young, we're the young hardcore Turks of the area. And so it actually just super funny because you're not saying something that those dudes wouldn't absolutely do at that time, which is like, yeah, cool fucking youth of today, hoodie dork or whatever they would come up with. Pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. So they, pr- and then by, and by the way, he's one of my closest friends now, but yeah, they, uh, they, they kind of clowned us, but then that also kind of led to us getting in the mix. So yeah, we were asked to do some show. I can't remember, but long story short, in Pittsburgh, it was just a different, different vibe. Just because yeah. there was no, there was no big bands coming through the area to even open for. So well, we would just be doing the same shows with the same bands every five times a week. You know what I mean? Let's go so, back to that. Let's go back to before you got into the middle of a war zone to live in Philadelphia for a bit. Yeah. You met your band members in high school, or did you meet them before that? Some before, some in high school. So I met Reba in sixth grade, like middle school. And was then, it because of you saw her and she was wearing some cool shirts, or you just ended up in class with her? No, she was. She wasn't even really into punk. I was like the first one who was into any kind of punk related music. So I kind of helped get her into punk music, and then we kind of both got into hardcore music, but uh no i don't we were just classmates basically <laughs> that was pretty much she liked rock i mean i'm pretty sure the friend i first met her she was wearing like a like a jet shirt or something like rock like stadium rock band from uh 2000 and whatever we were in sixth grade now what, but uh what were, what were you rocking in sixth grade dude i was mixed i mean my parents are super young so i had like a hot topic style like minor threat shirt that i would wear in early middle school there's some classic pictures of me but I also liked like the first big concert I ever went to was just Green Day and like pop punk kind of stuff like that. And then started getting into I got into like anti flag after that because when I was really young, because they were from here. Yeah, they're big from and your then, area. Exactly. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of connections to them, actually. But then, you know, I it, you know, how it spirals. You get more into as we got into high school, we we're getting more into hardcore and 
then metal and you know it's just that's kind of the way it went well so you meet you meet reba and sixth grade is a pretty awesome time because you think you're the big kids but you're not quite and you know high school is looming and you know you're just old enough to have your own angst but you're still too young to really like i would say uh pursue it further so as you, did you guys go and end up in the same high school with each other or did you guys end up meeting the rest of the guys uh, in the neighborhood or something? How did you guys all link up the gang? Here's how it went down. So it was me, Reba, and one of my uh, closest friends named Kimmy who did, who was in our other band, Adventures, and she also did all the artwork with me for the first rec- couple records up until this last record. So we were in middle school. Dominic, who's now in the band, was also in our middle school and actually grew up with Reba even earlier than that, like elementary school. They're from the same neighborhood, which is a neighborhood called Greenfield here in Pittsburgh. And uh, so they like lived right around each other. They weren't really like tight. But so he came into play later, but I knew him earliest uh, besides Reba. Then we get to high school and we meet pretty much right away, meet Joe, who was like this insane, like hippie like he was like strung out crazy guy taking like salvia that he was ordering online and it was coming how old was he doing that dude young he he was really young like i mean when i met him ninth grade so he must have been like 14 and uh he was into like led zeppelin and shit like that and i was like i instantly told him like fuck that shit dude we're into like punk rock shit so he slowly started getting out of that and then in the punk and then we met eric who had like a like first he kind of was like normal but then he quickly had like colored hair and crazy stuff and he was just like chain smoking cigarettes every day in ninth grade and was kind of like a bad the bad kid i guess yeah he and, immediately uh, that, went from like square to like i need to go ultra rebel to make up for it huh well no 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 honestly he's never been square he actually okay so he's just like he was just a bit hardened like he went to uh you know, he grew up in like kind of a rough area. So he had always gone to like really rough schools up until this point. The high school that we went to was a public school, but it was, so it was free, but it was also a performing arts school. So you could, you basically auditioned and pretty much everyone gets in, but you have a major, but it's, you know, he did drawing. We, some of us did music, but it's like a free school that's in downtown Pittsburgh. So he was kind of like a bad kid that then became punk, not really like a square kid that then became punk, but the punk kind of helped him honestly and made him a little bit uh, more focused because he was, you know, he's always well, been, he actually got kicked out of our high school like two years in. Well, that's right. He's a Billy badass of the group. That's exactly what that is. Pretty much, pretty much exactly. Like the, yeah, exactly. Like the, like the conscientious objector. Yeah, pretty much. And he was, he would always, he just, yeah, he just, I don't know. We gravitated. I remember. So we, we started Code Orange. I had a band in middle school with two other kids. Like one of my first days in school, uh, a kid just walked up to me who knew I played drums and he was like, you, you want to play in a band? And so I joined this other band and we had actually gained some like local notoriety. Like I played. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So how old are you? I was like 12. Yeah. Where were you playing we- shows to get this notoriety? We had, honest to God, we had like the first show we did was at, it was one of those, you know, pretty much pay on shows where you have like five local bands and like the, they're all pretty much, they were all like adults and we were like children. So we got in the mix through that through somebody's dad and we played at like the big club here that like is a club that we've, Code Orange is actually like headline recently. So it pretty much went from 
playing as a 12 year old at the same club as I'm now playing now at 27, 26 or whatever, 25 or whatever. But uh, we were at the time, but um, yeah. So I was in that band and we would play little gigs at like, uh, we play like a battle of the bands. We played a bunch of different stuff. And then that band, I thought that band was going to take over the world. And then that band broke up, which right before high school, which pretty much led to me, you know, going to Reba, going into high school, basically saying, you know, let's start a band. But if you agree to join this band, you have to promise you won't go to college or anything. We'll just go on tour as soon as high school's over. And she was like, all right, I'm down. But, and she stuck with it. She stuck to her word. So, well, so for those people who are questioning this, this is part of the drive that Jamie Morgan has. And (laughs) when, you guys began to start having a name that people were questioning, not in the, why do they have that name? But like, Oh shit, what's this band about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell everybody. I told everybody the exact same thing. I'm like, dude, they're like Western PA kids that look like gummo and like a fucking <laughs> gang. I literally, he's like, <laughs> like something out of gummo meets metal core, but they're like a fucking gang. And they're like, what do you mean a gang? I went like, yo, they're not trying to do anything else besides grow this band. And they're Fair like, really? Enough. And, and, and this came off the birth of conversations that you and I had about the direction you wanted to take the band. So For sure. this is, this is, this is what it is. And I think that maybe more bands should take this opportunity to say, man, do we really have what it takes to meet this kind of dedication? Because that was part of the, what I saw on you the first time we spoke and I gave you them flyers. I'm like, you know, first of all, you guys all kind of came out little by little. And have you seen the scene from um, Quintino's last movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, how like all the Manson kids little by little come out of the house? Straight That's what up. like the code band, like the code orange kids at the time did. They came out one by one. I'm like, all right, this is a gang. <laughs> this, is a, this is a fucking. This That's is a, true. I mean, this is, a, this is a gummo looking band, but they're straight up fucking dedicated. And you guys. So was there anybody who questioned that question where you were like, if we do this, there's no college. Um, no, (laughs) not really. I mean, Joe wasn't even in the band and moved with us to Philadelphia to just be the merch guy. That's real. And hang out. So, I mean, no, I mean, pretty much we ended up trying, like when we got to the end of high school, we were like, okay, what are we going to do? And so we agreed. Some of us thought, okay, well, maybe we can try to move to Philadelphia and some of us can try to go to college while we still try to do this thing. And so a couple of us did try to go to college, but then we all left after three months. So it was pretty much like we all went together to Philadelphia for like a summer and a fucking whatever semester or whatever. And then we all just quit and left and went back to Pittsburgh and just kept doing what we were doing. That was pretty much that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, not really basically – you know, I mean, it evolved over time because when you're when you're that little and you're saying stuff like that, you don't really know what you mean. But I was so heartbroken by what had happened to me in my previous band where everyone just split that I was determined to, like, build something that that couldn't happen to or that and, the chances and, and you were made that this choice. You made this choice at 15? 14. Yeah, 14. And, and that brings me to, you know, one other thing, which is, for instance, this is where a lot of bands in us, I think, differ a little bit. When you rolled up with that stack of flyers, 
I was obviously, we were obviously a little intimidated by you or whatever, but when we weren't intimidated by that fucking stack of flyers, we've been used to putting in that work. I mean, we in high school used to throw flyers at people, you know, like, like a fucking movie. We used to be flyer the whole city. I mean, the first show I ever booked was at an empty art space when I was 14 and I booked all the adult bands by calling them on the phone. Like now, we booked it ourselves. You now, know, when so, you did that show, did you have any kind of blueprint on how to book a show or just from who you guys playing in that band? Did you kind of already know how to sort of set it up? We had been going to shows at this place. This There used to be this place in Pittsburgh. I might have the timeline a little mixed up or whatever, but there used to be this place in Pittsburgh that was like, um, you would go play like retro kind of like video games. And it was like this mom and pop kind of place. It was like super duper cheap. And you'd go for like five bucks. You'd be there like all day. And they would have a back room where they would have shows. So we would go to like any punk type shows. Like we even play, I mean, uh, we, we even play with, there was this, you know, this band behind enemy lines would play. It was like dudes from Caustic Christ and like Oz Rotten and stuff. So there was real punk dudes in the mix. And then there was also like high schoolish kind of bands. And so we kind of figured it out from that. And then by going to those shows, we then, I think we were going to those before I booked that show, but I know one, I know then we, uh, we networked with some of those bands and put two of them on it. And I remember we just went up to the art space. It was called modern formations. People from Pittsburgh will know it was like in Garf the Garfield neighborhood. And there was a lot of art spaces that were doing shows. And we basically went and called and we like rented it out, I guess. And uh, then we just, at the end of the night, we gave the money from the show to the person. Uh, I actually remember there was a blizzard the night of the show and it almost got all fucked up, but people still showed up and I was like excited. So uh, yeah, I mean, we just figured it out. That's pretty much it. Now, again, this is one of these things uh, that people often do that is interesting where you're creating a space for your band because you wanted that so bad that you weren't willing to wait for someone to give you that opportunity. Would you say that is what it was uh, birthed out of? It's that. And it's just like where, I don't know if it's where we're from or whatever, but like at the time there was no, like, here's the scene that you should be in. It wasn't even until a couple, like a year or two later, we started to actually meet people. And then we kind of did get involved in a scene. We got involved in like the kind of fringe, you know, we were, we were, we were, 15 playing like house show like real crazy house show like you know punk shows with like roll around on the ground punk if you know what i'm saying you know what yeah. i mean like that kind of show uh and you know then that kind of got us into the hardcore scene and so it was just like a uh building building box you know like we were first on our own and then we started building our own thing and then we kind of found scenes and we would kind of go from thing to thing and we ended up being a band that could play in the punk scene play in the hardcore scene play in the almost like emo kind of like basement scene we were playing in all of those scenes at once you know now when and you then, did that was it because you just felt comfortable or were you just looking for your spot to like shine we just did not know dude we literally didn't know we didn't know that we didn't figure it out till really people started like not liking us anymore that it was even weird like and then we kind of realized oh these people are all kind of separate i mean and you know we, we, we kind of started gravitating more towards one place really just because of the actions of the people involved you know and that would be the hardcore scene a little bit so uh yeah i mean we didn't know shit we knew nothing nobody would tell us anything we didn't know anything and uh that was that so you when you don't know shit you just figure it out and 
I think that's the product of being from not being from like a super major city. You know what I mean? When did you run across what was the actual Pittsburgh hardcore scene and like the people in it? What was their first interaction that brought you to that? I think that was going to through like punkish hardcore friends who were friends with those with, with people that were more in the hardcore, hardcore scene. We would, we met people at the Mr. Roboto project, which is a very like famous old DIY venue here that, uh, um, you know, we got, there was a, I remember there was a message board for it. That was called like the Roboto board. And a lot of different people were on there and I was on there as like a teenager and we'd find out about the shows and then we started going there and that started connecting us a little bit more. And then through that, we ended up playing uh, a fest here called sincerity fest. That was like a, a big uh, kind of like hardcore fest, but they would mix too. There would be lots of other kinds of stuff on as well. And so now, we met people through that and yeah, kept so- spiraling. So that is uh that is the the fest that AJ, who also runs Preserving Underground, does, correct? Yes. And uh did you ever did you at the time know Mike Greenfield from any mind yet or not yet? No, I didn't even know him until really a couple years ago. I mean, I knew I mean they were fucking he would like that shit was scary to us at the time. You know what I'm saying? Especially like early on. Uh, well, I, but then I bring know, it up to got, you. I bring that up to you because early on, before you guys had made the move to Philadelphia, um, I saw AJ as someone who was really the like the bullhorn blasting whatever Pennsylvania uh, Western Pennsylvania hardcore was. And from my perspective, it seemed like he was very much a champion in your corner when you guys were coming up. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he drove us on our first tour in his like veggie mobile, and did that come pre moving to did that come pre moving yes. to Philly or after? Yes, before. Uh, yes. So yeah. you play. Sorry. So then we'll, we will get to that in a minute. So okay. You, I love that because you guys are so misanthropic in a lot of ways with not only how you look and sound, but that you were already open to just play wherever, and then it just was it just by chance or just by comfort of the social atmosphere that you kind of felt more close within the hardcore scene than the other places you guys were playing? I mean, honestly, even all the way up until when we moved to Philadelphia, we were playing in all kinds of in different environments. And then when we started to get popular, those or known at all, those people stopped liking us. I mean, to me, it was as simple as that. And a Explain, lot of them stopped can you being, go being deeper, go deeper with that. What do you, why I did mean, they it's stop? Hard. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just the way I think, you know, like from being there, the differences between like the punk scene, quote unquote, and the hardcore scene. Well, I'm uh, saying there's a lot of, ju- there's a lot. Were you changing musically or was just the, uh, was the presence seen as like, Oh, now these guys are like cool with the hardcore guys. Fuck them. Probably a little bit of both. Probably okay. a little bit of both. Um, I mean, and some of the guys were, I'm still cool with, but it was just our first taste of like, oh, like, you know, which we've dealt with many, many times now, which is like, oh, all these people don't like us anymore. You know, that's for, I mean, it's, it, it geared us up for what was going to happen uh, first getting popular in hardcore and then, you know, go riding the waves of that. And then the same thing with the metal thing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of it's set that stage. I don't know. I can't really speak on the reasons why. I mean, some things would be like interpersonal relationships, but mostly I do feel like it was just a general vibe of like, and you know, it's not everybody. It was definitely, 
there's definitely still a lot of people that we came up with that we have really good relationships with in those different worlds. And, you know, like we were kind of, we, you know, we were kind of part of a punk scene, but the, the scene we were really the most part of during that high school time was kind of like a hybrid scene, you know, uh, a band called one of the bands that we um, were the closest with and were really instrumental in like being, bringing us to be friends with other adults basically was this band called Heartless who are now in a bunch of uh, popular like punk bands, but they were a band that was on Southern Lord and they kind of sounded like nails sort of. Um, what is there? They're, they're, they're in a bunch of bands. I'm trying I'm blanking on the names, but a couple of them are actually popular, but um, like no time. Have you heard no time before? No. Um, Sorry. Bro. Who's no, that's okay. Um, there's one other one too, but either way, they've been successful doing the hounds of hate. You remember hounds of hate? Fuck yeah, we booked them this on this awesome Slapshot show I did in 2014. And I yeah. think they were a little bit concerned, like, oh, do we fit? And I'm like, you guys are fast in a hardcore band. You're going to kill it. And they did. Yeah, it was their, great. Their, their mentality of that is kind of shows you what, you know, all of us were, were kind of thinking at the time. But yeah, we became friends with them. That was another band when they moved to Pittsburgh. I mean, I'm still friends with some of them. Uh, but they just splintered off into like a totally different thing. But um. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was, you know, it's one of those gradual things that started to happen. And, you know, we, especially as we went into the, especially as we went into the I Am King record, because uh, we definitely well, did change our sound in, 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 in some ways. And it splintered off even more so there. But we've tried to reach out actually many times. And some people we're still close with. So, say la vie. If you're with the, if you're with the, if you're with the code, you're with the code. If you're not with the code, be going, <laughs> no. peasants. It is what you it know. is. You know how so, I feel. So you're getting your you're getting your chops down live and you're progressing musically. Are any of you even 18 yet? No, not at this point. I That's mean, what once, I thought. That's what I thought. We're kind of jumping around, but like when you know, once we're in Philly, we're probably 18 at that time. All right. So what I'm getting to is what we were just speaking on, where um you're starting to develop a different sound and what made you was it AJ who was like, you guys need a tour or did you just want to not just play the same places anymore? Yeah, he was definitely a part of that and helped us book like a weekend. We had also, there was a dude I met um, in a band, this like weird kind of post-rock band that was called native back in the day that had helped us uh, helped us book a week or two weeks in the summer one time and that was the first time before i think it was after that i'm trying to remember but those were our first shows. we did a little weekend that aj drove us on and then we did a couple weeks thing that uh um that guy helped me book this guy bobby who's a really nice cool guy when you were, helped us get looped in with like touche amore and some of those bands and that ended up being one of the first tours we got on that was like not a local kind of thing when you were trying to book this tour were you more excited about the opportunities to play beyond what you've done? Or were you already in the, what often people have is the anxiety, like, Oh, do you think people are going to care? Like what, what, where was your brain at as you were like driving towards this first tour that you were trying to book with this guy? No, we didn't care. I mean, we literally, one of the shows on the first tour we did, we played at like a 
rock school where the the guy got up on stage before and gave a whole speech about how it was okay to not have sex and all this stuff <laughs> and then in between the bands we uh and this was actually an aj thing aj forced us to do this he basically said okay take the cds and go try to take them to people in the crowd and sell them to them Smart so move. we would go we would go sell them to each people in the crowd like and we that's how we would try to make money and then i remember another show we played like really early on uh the lady in between bands there was maybe five people there max i mean the lady brought a hat out in between bands and whatever the the money they put in the hat is what you got after your set and nobody put any money in the hat after our set so we didn't get anything was that the worst show you played in that time Mm, no because we weren't in pittsburgh so we were like this is pretty sick like right there it was in new york i think right there is the right answer um A oh, one more story. One more story before I forget that you'll love, but that involves AJ. And right. Circle back. So, one show we went to, and he'll remember this. We this has a crazy time, but we went to we drove to this place in Brooklyn called Party Expo. We had was this booked, was this like a one off show, or was this part of that touring? It was part of that this weekend. One of these weekends I'm describing that had it was like we played not Philly. We played New Jersey at the Rock School, and we played we were supposed to play Brooklyn. I think one other show. So we drive there in the snow, we get there, we dig out of this, a parking space, like literally with shovels for like an hour, get in there, go into the venue and there is no show whatsoever. What's crazy about that though is, and I always thought this and I looked it up and the timing I'm pretty sure is correct, is there was two like little bad kids that were pretty much running the venue and they were like the volunteers there. And I was watching an interview with, you know, Takashi 69, right? And he was the kid who was working there that we literally spoke to when we went into the venue because it was him and his brother or something. And they were like the volunteers at the venue at that time. And so literally Takashi 69, I'm fairly certain, told us that there was no show and he had no idea what we were talking about. And we left and that was it. So you ran into 69 early on. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I sent this to everyone in the band like a couple months ago, and I was like, guys, was this not the exact time we did this? And they're like, yeah, and I have this like memory of it, so maybe it's not true, but I'm pretty sure that yes, I'm pretty sure six nine and like someone in his family told us that there was no show. They had no clue what we were talking about at all, and we just packed up and left, and that was it. Wow, what was the worst show of these? Uh... Of these uh, original outings, mm, I mean, I can't put a, I can't pinpoint it because we've played. I mean, the first, so we did all in those that stage tours. at that stage. Uh, let me think. I mean, I can name some at a little bit of a later stage, like we played a, cr- a household people where everybody was smoking crack, actual crack. And right, we we'll, were, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. We're, that we great. were scared of that. And, <laughs> Yeah, so that was one show where, like, and and not only that, they were smoking crack, and Joe, uh, who was not playing with us at the time, but he was with us, had to, again, when we had kind of learned this from AJ and stuff, he he was going up to each individual person and basically asking them for the door money, like, do you have $10? And we would just, and we were keeping the $10, because nobody was charging any money at the door. So we kind of learned those kind of, the ropes of that kind of stuff 
you know, pretty early. And that's pretty much how we had to scrounge it for all those first couple, I guess you could call them tours, but I mean, were they really tours? It'd be like half the shows wouldn't even exist. Like we would just show up and they wouldn't happen. So those would be the worst shows I would say. But yeah. Punishment booked the show a couple times that were pretty shitty. One time we used uh, the magazine book your own fucking life through their website. And I got us a show in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I didn't know if they had a scene, but hey, we had to play drive time. It would break the time up. And we met the people. They fed us. We go to this, what I thought would be like a cool punk rock venue. And we are setting up our gear. And I'm like, oh, how do you think the show's going to be? He's like, well, got to be honest with you. We didn't fly her. But me and the sound man are really excited to hear you. We guys checked you guys out and you guys sound awesome. And everybody in punishment looked at each other. We put our gear in the van and we drove to go up Route 666, which is the other reason why we just wanted to play Albin, uh, Albuquerque so we could do the Route 666 drive. And so although we got fed and we got scammed, we still did the Route 666 drive. So it wasn't the total loss. But that that's was that's probably the worst show ever by basically spending all day in a city, eating some weird food on a weird uh, porch, and then basically them being like, "No one's coming," but w- me and this guy here can't wait to see you. So, Joe, Joe, I'm gonna be real with you right now. We've had at least ten to twenty of shows like that at minimum. I mean, we've. we've you don't want to tell you about that. In, in, we've in the same deal. Yeah, you're better than better to do it and have the experience. And the fact that you've been through that and you didn't give up just shows just the fucking drive in you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's I all I look at it as great experiences now. It's prepared us to be what I think we are, which is that we are still very young, but we're also veterans of what we're doing, which we genuinely are. I mean, there's many kids that can attest to seeing us play in front of five people, ten people, two people. 20 people, 30 people. I mean, all the way up until that tour, you know, we did with Terror and H2O, which was like the first like package tour that I think we got on, if I can remember right. Um, other than doing like a couple show stint with Touche Amore and I think maybe Defeater or something in like the Midwest. Did you do that? Did you do that before the Philly trip or once you moved here? I think it was, uh, no, that stuff was after. That's so that's kind of where I was getting. That was kind of why I had I had I had a reason to ask that question. So, okay. you did some traveling, AJ and his experience, and just trying to mentor you, kind of got you some of the ropes of the road. What was the driving force to make you want to come to Philly? Did you just feel like you were not going to be able to get to where you wanted to go out in the Western Pennsylvania, or is there an idea that you were trying to reach by living here? Well, two things. I mean. Of course, we knew about like this is hardcore and stuff like that. We wanted to play. So there's that one. Two, um, a lot of people in Pittsburgh, especially like getting out of high school and stuff, I think they go to Philly because it's not that far and it's in the same state and it's something like different because they don't want to just straight up stay in Pittsburgh, whether they're going to come back to Pittsburgh or not. So it's just something like a lot of people do and a lot of people we knew were doing. And uh, we knew that there was more of a scene there and uh, we wanted to try it. So, you know, it, and, and I think, you know, Reba was able to get into a college there. A couple of us were able to. Well, so we I it. wanted you to, I wanted you to break down when you basically go to the tribe and tell them 
we are moving to Philadelphia. Or is that how it went down? I mean, it was, it's never like that, but it was like, this it was like I that. Think we should, no, it's, it's, I mean, listen, trust me. I don't know. You haven't thankfully had to deal with, and not in a bad way, but had to lock, bang horns with Reba. But it's not, it's not like, hey, do this. That Hold don't on. happen. I like, I, mean, to, I like to I like to I like to sidetrack our beautiful conversation to point out that when you guys were in a vehicle issue, I I, oh, I, yeah, I, I remember that. I, oh fuck! I I break your I break your balls for being the uh, uh, captain of the ship as far as the drive. Uh, she's a real captain. Well, this bro. is it came out, and for those who are listening, who are just this is going to be an inside joke. Code had was it a trailer wheel? It was a trailer wheel. Or a uh, van tire problem, and me and my guy we didn't have a van. It was a truck we were in. But yeah. that's what it was a truck, and it had a tire issue, and the guys are kind of like, I don't know what the fuck we're gonna do. Reba, who is a queen, immediately barked orders, put this shit in motion, and me and Brian, me and Brian St. John looked at each other. And he's like, Damn, we know she's in charge. And any moment yep. where I thought that maybe you might have had. Like full run of the ship was over because I saw no that way. okay, Jamie might have the drive and the creativity, but yeah, that's the captain. So let it be known. At no point am I doubting her presence in the band. Oh, and of course, where she she's, is in the power structure. She's a G when it comes to like car shit, also like straight up. She like knows her fucking shit. Like she she is her and Joe are like the leads in that situation every, every single time and him more over time. Now he definitely does a lot more, but yeah, she was the first one to even learn how to drive. She was the first one to learn how to do any of that shit. She's just, you know, so like, yeah, like pretty much what I was saying, it was, you know, it was a discussion for sure. But I mean, again, she pretty much always, which I really have love and respect for. And, you know, of course, cause we're best friends. She always trusts me, you know, for the most part. And she'll say what she thinks. And, and sometimes a lot of times I'll listen to what she thinks and change my opinion completely because uh, she's right. But, you know, if I'm really adamant about something, she trusts me on it nine times out of 10. So, I mean, pretty much 10 times out of 10, it's really, they all do. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful to have that. Well, so let's yeah, break I mean, that. We, stop, we, stop, we, stop. Let's, let's, that's a good way to, that's a good way to break this down. And again, a lot of what, what I wanted to talk to you about and because people will listen to this instead of just chatting you on the phone is yeah. what I learned about Code Orange is that, you know, a lot of people in the perspective of what they think a band is, is like a band shows up, they write music, and then people find them, they become popular. And then all these other things happen because of people outside the band motivating or telling them they should do this. And that's not the case with code. And it wasn't the case when you were code orange kids. It's not the case when you're code. Now nope. you guys have had such an immediate, like drive from internally in the membership. And then you could see how each person in the band directly has a role that they play that makes them valuable to the gang. And that's why you guys are more like a gang than an actual sure. fucking band because okay. you're in this position where the roles are, make everything happen and so if reba wasn't the person that she is the band wouldn't work the way it does and, oh, and that was amazing early on like really early on that i realized like all right this isn't i mean like I, I kid around about like when we first saw each other in north philly but the truth of the matter is i had an amazing immediate 
deeper respect when I saw, holy shit, this is it. This is the band that's like legit driving towards something. And you were driving together. It wasn't like there's always that guy in a band who's like, I don't want to do this. Never. Yeah. And, and code's just not like that because that's not how a fucking gang works. So break it, break it, break me down some of the kind of like the the role and personalities and that kind of deal in code because I think that's so much more interesting than some of the early show stuff we just talked about. Yeah. No. I mean, I'll. I definitely will do that. I'll start by saying this. I mean, the only the only people in the code ecosystem that have failed us are outside of the band and we have had people that we have let get close to us who have failed us tremendously not one of the people in my band has ever failed me has ever done anything that would make me question their character has never done anything that would make me not only question their dedication to what we're doing but more so our true bond and it's not even a friendship it's not even a family it's something like what you're saying. It's something, it's something that is not really, I feel like so lucky. And I like to be able to actually say this on recording because you never know what happens in life. I feel very lucky to be able to experience that in my life because I would, these guys would die for me and I would die for them. You could say that about a lot of people, but I've been in so many situations with these guys. And again, like I said, we've had many failures around us. That have, that have tried to pollute our ecosystem in different ways, but never anyone that's in this band, you know, me, Joe, Reba, Eric, and Dominic as well, because Dominic, though joining the band on the last record, has been in this group since, like I said, since we were in sixth grade. He's been there all along. So I want to start by saying that. In terms of what kind of everybody's role, you know, I mean, it's, the amount that these guys do at this point completely cut me from the equation because I just fucking talk and fucking come up, think of ideas and shit, bullshit. The work that these guys put in individually, each member of my band that is not me could not only exist in any band on this earth, but run any band on this earth. 100% fact. You know, we got Reba is has learned so much about not just the music business, not take away the fact that she is, in my opinion, one of the, one of the best guitar players in metal and heavy music that there is right now, but in, in a badass singer and all the rest of it, but she is on the phone all day long, figuring this stuff out, all, doing our business stuff all day long before we had some of the resources we have now. And still to this day, any of these streams that you've seen, all of the logistics, we don't have a tour. We've never even really had a tour manager. We've maybe done one tour with the tour manager. And really, Reba was being the tour manager the whole fucking time, checking all their mistakes. Because she, there's, there's, if I could take her out of her own body and make her the tour manager and the guitar player, she would be the ultimate. She could do any of these jobs, any of them. Eric is at this point not only unbelievably musically talented to yeah and I, I know i'm biased but i think his i think history in the future will show to the point where i think he could do music for tv shows movies rappers you name it visually the guy we have a we have a video that's coming soon that looks like fucking disney pixar okay this guy's making this shit by himself he's one guy 
when you see anything like what he's about to drop, you have a thousand people involved. You ask the label, oh, how much is that going to cost? They say, oh, the animation is going to be 10 grand or whatever. This guy built his own computer from scratch, taught himself how to do this animation and all these visuals, and has made all of our visuals, anything you saw in our live streams, he made it from scratch. Outside of the stuff we shot with Max Moore for our music video, he has designed all of that. And then you got Dom and Joe, who are not only soldiers on the stage and, and, and ready to go to war on the stage all day long and off the damn stage, they are running our merch store. So every day from nine to, I want to say five, but really seven or whatever, they're shipping out orders out of an attic, out of a hundred degree attic that's got two air conditioners in it that somehow don't make it any cooler at all because we're in fucking Pittsburgh and everyone, it's just shitty fucking window shit. But shipping shit all day long, organizing, doing the customer service, doing all of that, running our whole store from scratch. So, I mean... I could not be more blessed with having, you know, the, there, there are big time odds against this band is what people don't realize based on the fact that we've had some moderate success. The amount of work that these people have put in, our success should be so much greater that it's not even, it's not even on the, the, the same scale because of the work these guys put in. There is no band. Let me finish one thing. Let me finish. 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 One thing. I'm not, I'm not. Listen, listen, I'm not. Let me finish. What I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I will say right now, there is no fucking band in the history of metal music or rock music that has worked as hard as those guys have worked. And I'm not talking about going on the road and fucking putting the miles in and all that bullshit. That doesn't even count. I don't even think of that. I'm not talking about the time on stage. I'm talking about the every day during this thing. So I really do want people to know that because it's not something, especially them. I'm a, I'm the loud one. They're not the loud ones. No one really, people might not really see that. They're really not very loud, all any of them. But the amount of work they put in is, it's, it's not comparable to anyone. And history will show, but continue on. What I was going to say when you said for the work that was put in, the success has not been met yet. I got to tell you, man. And this comes from just seeing things, how they roll. Efforts made always pays high dividends. And the amount of personal blood, sweat, and tears and dedication is 98.9% of the reason why code is where it's at right now. And I know that people are probably listening like, man, that guy's full of himself. No, that's not how it fucking works. Uh, my friend uh, Anthony, who we're going to have on the show, who sings for Town Concrete, but is actually way more successful beyond the band, wrote something on the internet, something like, if you have a fallback plan, you're going to fall back. And you're either all in and you're going to make it work and make it happen or you're going to fail. So when some of these bands who have decided to not have secondary jobs and do the hardcore tours and do Europe and their thing is like, this band is my life and I love touring. But the, all they do is push off to work to third parties and lose the opportunity to get hands on. They're going to be the fallback after X amount of years. Code is all in. This is what you guys are. And I said it again, we said it a million times. You're a fucking gang. And so 
Whereas, especially with 2020 and the nonsense of what happened with this year and your inability to push the record the way you were hoping for, I'm telling you, you guys are so young and you guys have driven yourselves so far and driven yourselves so far that all this work will pay off. I appreciate that. I'm being honest. It's like, yeah, you know what? It's hard to see when, fuck, man, what was it? Seven months ago, me and you were talking about the craziness of this tour that was going to happen and all the things. And, and yeah, a lot of it didn't come to play for you. But I don't okay, want you, I, but I'm going to let you exactly be positive. Look for the good sides because I'm going to tell oh, you. Oh, for sure. For sure. I know, I mean, I, know a lot, I know a lot of bands that work hard and I know a lot of bands that pride themselves in what they do. But I don't know a Code Orange who is out there being like, oh, you can't make masks for us? Fuck this. We'll make our own masks. <laughs> that, um, that's uh, that's Rebun Dom right there. But and that's, real quick, that's I, the oh, drive. One thing I do want to say is, yes, no, I, I completely agree with you 100%. And just to make clear the point I was making before, for one, I will speak on myself positively and say good things about myself, but I'm not speaking on myself there. I'm speaking on, on behalf of them because I genuinely watch the work that they put in and I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I feel that to not say that about what they're doing is wrong. And it's a disservice to them because people should know. And I agree whatever, they, whatever they want to think about me, I don't, it is what it is, but you don't even have to go you know, there. I'm just, I'm psyched that no, no, you no, have the opportunity sure. to tell people because from, I agree. This, from this viewpoint, it's a fucking machine. It's a gang, but it's a gang machine because everybody has this role and it's a more unique thing. Like, obviously, when you go on tour, I always tell bands, everybody should have a job in the band. And it shouldn't be what they do on stage. It should be what they do. Pre-show, post-show, everyone should have the job. So every day is Groundhog Day, but it's the same. And then when you run as a team, it happens. And there are bands who adapt to these things, and they're very good on tour. And then when they're off tour, they're undisciplined. But you guys live this. And so when we talk back to where we were getting to, where you were starting to decide to go to Philadelphia, I wanted to lay out with that question just to show people who are like, how the fuck are these teenagers going to move to Philadelphia and make it happen? It's their drive. It's the confidence in what they're doing. And it was the one brain of collective brain of we're going to make this fucking happen. That made you guys move out here. And did your first successes come, do you think, because of the work that you did before or because you were able to network more being Philadelphia-based at that time? I think that This Is Hardcore was definitely a big thing, and I'm not trying to suck you off or anything. The reality is that's true. And it was the first thing that we did that was – outside of our bubble that kind of connected us. And again, yeah, we played the spot, you know, you, we played that early spot where there ain't, there ain't that many people watching you, you know, and we played the one after that and we played the spot up after that, but just being there and being in that mix and having our name on that poster was a big part of connecting us to this world a little bit that we were fans of, of course, and we're a part of on some level, but we're somewhat disconnected from and always will be in some way just solely based on our weirdness, you know? So, I mean, I feel that that was a big part. Um, there was a lot of turning points. I mean, like I said, you know, and I want to mention this band because what I just said before, 
we we have learned a lot about work ethic on the way. It wasn't just like boom, oh, we have we have we always had that drive. But going on tour with Terror and Bane, and even every time I die for sure, and later on, later on, Madball and these bands, you know, we learned especially from Bane and Terror, who were some of the first like hardcore bands to bring us on the road. We saw that grind that they have been putting in and how long they've been putting in for just on the road. And that taught us a lot about the road grind, you know, a, a lot, a lot. And just seeing what they would put their bodies through um, at the, at the ages they even were then they weren't old or anything and they're still not, but you know, it had been a while. It's a fucking grind to see Vogel in that van and then getting up there every day and then telling me he's having neck spasms and his knees don't worry. And he's still up there every day and he would stage dive into the crowd. It would, it taught me something. It was like, you, this is, this is just like, it's a, it's a fight. You know what I mean? You have to put it on the line up there for the kids and whatever comes with it over time, you know, the aches, the pains, the mental pain, the relationship strain, that's what it takes. And, and those bands taught us that as we, you know, we always had to drive, but they, they helped us focus it. So touring with those bands was a big point. And yeah, that was definitely after we went to Philly after this is hardcore. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that, that those were, I would say those were some big, those tours were big turning points. Those ones I just mentioned. When you began touring, you were still self booking, correct? Yes. And what do you, what do you remember about the first person who probably came to you and asked about booking you? hard to remember i feel like it was just some i would message people on like forums we i had like an e- wacky email thing um another important moment was early on when we we played with converge in braddock pennsylvania um when we were still in pittsburgh and that's how we signed with death wish actually just by opening that show um so i remember with- i remember you guys uh talking I believe you guys were talking to Trey out of this marker, were you not? Yeah, that makes that timeline makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we were. I remember seeing that conversation happening and me going, Yeah, that's where you guys need to fucking be. So, yeah, and, and it was quick. I mean, we always want that was kind of the first Death Wish bands like Converge and even Cursed and uh, you know, then later on even blacklisted and even you know, a lot of the bands that were on in Cold World, who's on Death Wish at the time, there was a lot of bands on Death Wish that we looked up to and admired. And uh, so as soon as we, you know, we did we did that show with Converge shortly after Jake asked us to link up with Death Wish and it was like a no brainer. We did it instantly. And, and that's where we were for our first uh, two records. How'd it feel? Because I know that you had uh, a smaller label who had put out something before that, but how did it feel like you're, you're definitely 18, 19 years old and you're signing to a label that is for anybody who wants to be in a hardcore band, getting signed to death wish is definitely an accomplishment. Oh yeah. Did you feel accomplished or did you feel now because I'm on this label, I'm going to drive harder. You know how, you know how I am. It's always, it's always everything. It's both. I'm very, I am very, I'm always very grateful. And I was very grateful. I mean, again, like all the bands around us in Pittsburgh, they wanted to be on death wish. You know what I'm saying? So 
Yo, you still there? Did I get breaking up? No, you're fine. I'm listening. Oh, my bad. Sorry. I, I, like, uh, I just I'm, got a call. I got a call on my phone, even though I fucked no, up. No, 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 no. All right. Anyway, but so, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, we felt the way we always feel like, at the beginning of how we always feel, which is, yes, we were super driven. We were super uh, grateful. We were psyched. We loved Converge. Anyone who's heard our, heard our early material knows how much we love Converge. We were going to get to work with Kurt Ballou, which was absolutely fucking mind-blowing to us. Um, and then that slowly turns into, well, let's keep going. I mean, that's just how we're built. I mean, for better and for worse. And not let's keep going and, like, let's move past this. Not in any way, but, you know, because we were, you know, at the time and – even to when we left death wish we were very uh, happy with for a point there was a point where we were very happy with what was going on and at the time i was thinking we could we could do this forever you know and then things went different ways and didn't work out like that but just in terms of you know what what can we do what's the net what can we keep going how do we keep going let's move without disconnecting from what makes us us and what connects us to our community and the people around us what can we do um so that's just how we're wired. But yeah, it was, it was a great experience, at, at, especially at first. Um, and it meant a lot to us. Like it was the kick in the ass we needed. It showed us, you know, it showed us when we all, I mean, it was right around the time, literally when we, this, this is actually how it went down. We were in Philly and I'm remembering this now. So it's coming to me. We signed quote unquote to death. wish obviously there was not, there wasn't money or anything involved, but we signed. And that's when we quit. That is literally when we left we said fuck this we need to go on tour and i blanked on that completely till now but that's the timeline so we were in philly i was talking to trey on the phone all the time this must have been after that i think the was the first this is hardcore we did do you remember before we moved there or after you moved here you guys played this hardcore and you signed all in that that summer yeah 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 so so sometime around that fall winter we signed with we or sometime around the time we signed with them and then, you know, we left. So that was that. It was like, fuck, fuck this. We're, we're, we're going on tour. We don't – it wasn't really about money or anything. It was just like we got to – these guys are giving us the ball. We have to take the ball. That's pretty much I remember now the way that I described it to them at the time, to the bandmates at the time too. It was just like they're giving us the ball. They're saying go. We can't just fuck around being at college and all this shit. We all suck at this shit anyway. Let's get the fuck out of here and go. And that was it. And that's when Merrick came into the picture. Yes, Merrick actually came in the picture because he worked in the same building as Deathwish. Exactly. So when when we were in Boston, we would roll up to the building and like we were so psyched because they would say it was like fucking to us. It was like going to fucking Disney or something. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. This is the same building when they still shared the office with Bridge Nine, or is that when they split? I don't think they were with Bridge Nine at the time. So. We had spoken on episode one about how Deathwish and Bridge Nine had shared an office, and at one point, even Matt Pike had also shared office space with Bridge Nine. Deathwish, yes. Deathwish Incorporated had eventually um, their own office space, and Matt Pike, who is a another amazing booking agent, had the Kenmore Agency, and yes. Merrick, who is an incredible booking agent, and had been yep. booking Bain. Touche, uh, title fight, um, a ton of bands had been in the same office space as Deathwish. So that's how you guys end up linking up and choosing to go with him because he's the man. Uh, yes, basically. And, and he is still our booking agent to this day. 
He has been tremendously um, loyal to us. And just like the same way, I mean, your relationship is, you know, he, we are loyal to him. And so, you know, he was, you know, actually talking to speaking about America. I just had, you know, Zach from Bain is now like the, our guitar tech. He comes with us. So he was telling me that when Merrick first called him and basically begged him to let us do a run with them in Canada or something, he was like, it sounds like a fucking ska band or something. And Merrick was trying to convince him, no, it's like hardcore-ish. It's kind of like converge or, you know, whatever. And, uh, but eventually Merrick convinced them, literally begged them and was like, please put these guys on and got us on that run with Bane, which helped us uh, spiral into these other things and the terror and all this other stuff. So, and he did the same thing with Terry. He was begging air agents, same way. Please let them get on first. Like we took that first terror tour. I think, I'm trying to think if we even got a hundred bucks a night. It might've been less than a hundred bucks a night. Like it might've been 75 bucks a night or something like that, but it didn't fucking matter. We, that was more than we were making doing any of our own tours. So, you know, Merrick fucking grinded for us. Even just, even just this year, he's blowing up the fucking guy who runs Coachella, you know, now he's blowing him up, blowing up. Cause he works at this big indie agency. He's like, dude, I'm telling you this record. He's sending him the stuff early. He gets the guy into it. Boom. We're on Coachella. Cause he, he grinds like that. You know, he comes from a, a somewhat similar background that we do. And it's that same mentality that helped us get on with Bane. It's helping us get on what we're getting on now. So I love that dude. But yeah, I met him in that building and uh, he was like on the floor below and quickly we got hooked up with him. And I just all, you know, he, I always have trusted him. Now, when we think of code orange and we think of death wish signing people who do not know what that means, probably think that, you know, Jake and Trey give you like a gold bar and, um, then you're just off to the races, but this is still go time. And one of the things that a lot of misconceptions come from is that signings involve vast sums of cash and doors being opened. And I'm glad that you pointed out like, yeah, man, you, you're Merrick has you assigned to, you know, not, I wouldn't say formally signed, but he's now going to book you, yeah. but he still has to work his ass off just to get code. Who's now on death wish. Out. Oh Yeah. Oh and yeah, it was impossible. That's the thing that comes from misconceptions is people think, oh, well, once we get signed to this label, it's an autopilot and the rest happens. And I remember you guys going out and playing with any and everybody possible. Exactly. But here's the thing, Joe. What you just said does happen for some bands. So the reason they think that is because there is reality to it. It just didn't happen for our band. It's never happened for our band. It's the same way, again, America has to beat down these people's doors now to give us a shot. There are bands, and over the years, I've tended to hate those bands, even though I'm trying to grow up as a human being and not hate bands for no reason, but that those things do happen for, like, boom. And there is none of that involved. They just get on the fucking stage, and bing, bang, one thing leads to another, and then they're on the bigger stage and bigger stage. That doesn't happen. For us, it's a lot of strategizing. It's a lot of banging down the door so it is a misconception i agree but for some bands it's not you know some bands just have that natural thing let me ask something let me ask something no yes you're gonna you're gonna answer this right now which which path do you want do you want the everything's easy path or do you want to work for it i got a song about it it's called the easy way we don't get the easy way 
I'm so, not saying I'm not saying you don't get the easy way. I'm saying I'm omnipotent I'm God, and I'm asking you right now, Amy, <laughs> do you want the easy way or do you want to earn it? I would love to earn it. Um, and there it is. And I'm 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 great. And there it is. It. And there it is. Nothing that people get easily is well earned. And because it's the experiences and it's doing it your fucking self that is the fucking pay dirt. That's the that's the thing that this podcast is built on. And we are moving slowly through different episodes here where different stories are coming about, but they all ring true back to these same things. I mean, it, it, it's it's going to be that way when we're in the 20s of episodes and 50s of episodes. And you're not even in the, you know, you're still in the first 10 episodes. The way to win at life is experiences. Getting up, dusting yourself off, getting back up, having drive, having confidence, coming up with a plan and not saying, Oh, I could never do this. No, fucking write it down. Make it fucking happen. When yes. you fail, think about how you failed. And so, yeah, in a perfect world, we all like to be born with these uh, magic uh, like luck cards that people pull out of their ass. But those same people don't have the stories and don't have the drive and don't have the commitment that code has. So, no, I agree. And, you know, the other the thing I do want to say is that I'm again, I said it earlier, like. I have the ultimate luck card. Look at the fucking people, guys, I got in my crew. I see everyone else's crew. I, there's not a soul on this earth I would want more than the guys in my fucking crew. I mean, so nobody gets that. I'm, I'm, and, and again, you can build that and shape that over time, but that's character in your heart. That's who you are before I ever even meet you in the hall. And that's who they are. So I'm very lucky in that regard. I mean, have we had to grind? Yes. And I, I, it's, it's fun and almost funny to like highlight. And I, I think it's also, again, it's important to point out that there are different paths for different people, just so the kids really know how this shit goes, but I'm lucky as shit. I mean, dude, I got, I got four of the hardest workers, smartest, talented people in, in heavy music in my fucking house. So I'm, we're blessed in that way. I mean, that's the thing that has to be said again and again. And I don't mind, you know, repeating myself in different episodes here. Work and learning yourself, whether you get to the point where you are so fucking successful, someone could do it for you is irrelevant. The fact that you understand the work and you understand the things that go into it, you're better suited in any stage, you know, and a lot of the stuff yes. that comes from hardcore comes from, uh, meeting people, which we've talked about, um, having that presence of mind and drive, which you definitely have, as well as the creativity. And one of the things that you touched on, which is really cool. Yes, you're Code Orange. You were slated to play Coachella, but you didn't forget about the bands and the, and the people that kind of walked you up the path to where you're at now. And I know that Terror played a big role in giving you a yes. slot when you're at this stage where Merrick's begging Bane. And how did you feel when Terror came to, or when the Terror when the Terror thing came to real life? 
Um, we were so fucking psyched. I mean, it was similar. You know, there was a similar deal when we were on tour with, uh, we were on tour with this band from Louisville. Actually, again, everything kind of happened. So, reason we were on tour with this kind of screamo band from Louisville called Xerxes and uh, the guy's twin brother. Cool name, being, by the way. Yeah, the guy's twin brother ended up being Max Moore, who's now our video director, who's done all of our videos. These videos that have changed our path every time they come out, they're so fucking awesome. And met him through that. So uh, I remember the first time we were on tour with them and we found out we were going to get to do a couple shows with, I think it was Touche Amore and some other ones and how excited we were. Then it's like, wow, we're going to get to play with this band we think is cool. And they have like fans and it's, and I, I seen them at This Is Hardcore and people are going fucking crazy the year they played. Like, I forget what year that was. But, uh, you know, and then, and then again, same thing with this. It was like, holy shit, this is fucking insane. Like we're playing with bands that people know. And like fucking legendary bands that really matter. And, you know, they taught us a lot about hardcore and taught us a lot about, uh, I mean, dude, there were so many just dudes on that tour. Like Vitalo was on that tour because uh, Backstreet's playing. Um, Dan from King Nine was Terror's merch guy, singer King Nine, who's one of my, one of my closer friends to come out of hardcore for sure. Uh, still, you know, so just so many people that, you know, and we and, and and you know, we we have ups and downs with different people, but we met so many people on that run. And I, I do remember on that tour, probably the first week and a half, no one talked to us, literally at all. We had no communication with any of the other bands. We would sit alone and in the corner and all share one bottle of water or whatever the fuck, and you know, just wait for our time. And let then, me ask like, you something, something with clicked, that. You know, let me let me ask something with that. Looking back at that, would you say that it was because you were expecting them to come up and talk or were you just nervous to make that first connection? Nervous for sure. And I mean, dude, we're absolute freaks. I mean, we still are, but like you, like you, yeah, you guys are stripped. Go, you guys are still in like full gummo before you went nine inch nails on us. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> no, but I mean, literally I weighed like not like, I, you know, our, I mean, I weighed like a hundred pounds less than I do right now or the same with Joe and you know, we were very just these frail, weird people, which we are still weird, but we're not so frail. Um, but you know, it was just weird. I understood why, you know, we none of them have probably ever even heard of us. And uh we're playing this weird music and we all had our shirts off on stage and I had my pants off. So I mean, why the fuck would anybody want to hang out with, with us? Is the is the real thing. And then I forget somehow we broke the barrier and uh we just all became friends and then they kind of all became like big brothers to us for that whole time. And that led to us doing another run with terror and fucked up and power trip, which is some of my best memories of uh, power trip is doing that tour and became good friends with them at the time. And so, you know, it's all, it's, it's interesting how, how life, when you think back like that, like how things all shake out and the way things run in the different directions. Now, I think that's how we also became friends with, like justice, you know, I remember he was one of the first people who individually became like our friend and would come when we would do adventures and stuff, he would come and hang out with us. And like, I remember one time he was just that, like, we were talking about this the other day, but he, we were all at Reba's aunt's house and he was there for like two days. And we were just remembering, I'm like, why the fuck was justice there with us for two days at your aunt's house? Just like doing push-ups the man's ubiquitous, the man. Justice, yeah. justice. <laughs> Justice just shows up at this hardcore sometimes. And I'm like, hey, man, cool to see. You. And I, I never know if he's showing up. And it's always cool. And, you know, 
he's just one of these spaces when they pop up, you're happy to see him, you know, whether it's a show them. or somewhere else. And so, I mean, just as good anywhere. He was always so cool to us. Like we, you know, I mean, there was trapped under ice and we were, we were always like, we were like scared of or at all, but we were like definitely intimidated by these older people that are like in trapped under ice. And I just remember like he broke that barrier down so quick and uh, was always so cool to us and like, just take us around. Like when we would be in Richmond or wherever he would, he would drive us around. Actually one time I was driving with him and, uh, no, actually, I can't tell that story. Never mind. But yeah, anyway. That story has <laughs> uh, not been going to hit the podcast. <laughs> okay, that's it. Yeah. So yeah, we have many stories. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how, again, like to get back to your question. Yes, that is kind of how we, through This Is Hardcore and then through those tours, that's kind of how we entered uh, the the national hardcore scene, I guess is what you, what you would call it. What did you learn the most like the most important thing you learned from scott vogel oh how to be humiliated on state no, i'm just kidding uh, dude um a lot of things i mean like i said probably the thing i'd walk away with is again that he has like he has this deep work ethic that's totally based around his love for music and that's not to be cheesy and like you know, he'll talk about love and hardcore and stuff. And if you were to try to talk to him, or if I was to try to talk to him in any kind of like a way that was, you know, romanticizing anything about it, he would probably tell me fuck off or just change the subject. But because, you know, I don't, he's not, he's not, he's, he's, he's a little, he can be a little bit closed off with some of that stuff, but he loves music. He loves hardcore music. It's all he cares about. He puts his, physical well-being on the line for it and has been for a really long time and uh you know he his he he's not looking to climb some kind of ladder which you know i have a lot of respect for he's just looking to you know make you know continue to make the music that he loves and and play as much as possible i also learned about a lot of different uh hip-hop that he would take me in the van and say it's hip-hop time and we would just listen to hip hop in silence. Like when I was like a teenager and I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, or, I mean, there's so many fucking weird things. Or when I would be on the side of the stage and he'd just come over and hand me the mic and just put me, push me physically to the front of the stage. Well, so, that's, I mean, that's vocal to a T and uh, to, exactly. dovetail in, to dovetail into what you're saying. I wrote a letter to Scott Vogel when he was still in despair. And I didn't get to book his band until the Buried Alive uh, demo came out. And that was over, fuck, that was 22 years ago. And yeah. when Terror came out, he had shipped me a bunch of demo CDs to sell and sent him money for. That man has never stopped being the person he was I wrote a letter to. And he was that person way before I ever wrote that letter. And no matter what incarnation, whether you're seeing scott and he's in uh like a weekend tour and he's not as stressed as like 20 days into a terror tour he has an all-encompassing vibe of loving hardcore knowing a shit ton more about music than i ever fucking will and uh even when uh i got really lucky that i got to see him do world be free and uh we did them with judge and it was just so sick to see him still be him once again in a different band, but still be Vogel. And I imagine any band that gets a chance to be on tour, especially when they're early on in their career, 
and they're just trying to figure out the ropes of hardcore. I don't know if there's too many other people that I would want to kind of chaperone me through some of these early stages than someone like Scott, you know, and doubling down on what I'm talking about in a bigger perspective here. We're talking about seven, eight years ago and people who had found your band as early as two, three, maybe five years ago, don't really see how much code orange is ingrained within the hardcore community because by the time they had started interacting with your band, you were a different stage. You sounded and looked more presentable in a metal world, but you guys cut your teeth and were raised up through us, through the hardcore scene. That's why we still love you. And it's where the connection and and where the connection still is because you didn't show. And, 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 you know, one thing I will say that you said earlier and I had to think about it is there are bands and I'm going to leave them out of this podcast because I'm on Joe positive vibes here Mm -hmm. that showed up with a manager before they played one show with a hardcore band showed up and used hardcore for a year or two to propel themselves into a world of being the second of five and then the third of five and then the four and headlining over four shitty bands. And they try to commend themselves for their time at hardcore, which was like, it was predetermined. It was manufactured and codes story starts as code orange kids. And as a band who was adopted and raised like a fucking orphan wolf in the hardcore. Exactly. I agree. And to, to add on to what you're saying about, about other bands in that regard is not only that, but there's a lot of fucking bands and you can speak and and you know what I'm talking about that. As soon as shit gets hot, they get right out of the fucking kitchen. As soon as there's something that again, and there's levels to there's, there's levels to these type of things. So some of it can be understandable, but and no, without saying much, as soon as maybe maybe you aren't the fucking coolest guy at the table at that moment, they're out. They're out. And so anyone who you know, anyone who again, I don't think that this is like a widespread thing, but to me, hardcore does have a lot um, of to do with being to being loyal to those who are loyal to you and not to not to a point of blindness in any way you have to call out the things that you know are wrong you absolutely have to but sometimes people will go along with what the person next to them is uh you know is pushing forward as opposed to looking for themselves in that regard and you've had a lot of bands where that's happened you know, I don't know how, how we don't have to get into it, but they, I'm sure those bands consider themselves the hardcore of the hardcore, but where the fuck are they now? Well, that's the, biggest, that's the biggest thing. And uh, I hadn't really touched on it yet in a podcast, but it is something of a theme that I was hoping to broach and I can kind of start it here and we'll echo it in newer episodes. For my lifetime, I've always felt like specifically bands, especially who are more metal tinged, had always used hardcore shows because it's easy to get on them in an early stage in their careers as a springboard. And some of them, and it's, and I know because I'm fucking older than a lot of you listeners and maybe I'm younger than some of you guys. I was into corn 
And then I wasn't into corn because I was a full ass hardcore person. And not that they didn't put out other records, but I got so immersed in a culture that it wasn't really pertinent to me what the new record was. And I, and I realized that early on, I was a metal person who found hardcore and became a full ass hardcore person. But I saw corn open for some bands. I seen a bunch of these bands that are really reveled in the new metal that are now worshiped by young hardcore kids. And like, Oh, these were the greatest bands. And it's like, they're so great. They were open for our fucking bands. Cause they didn't have, there wasn't a scene for them yet. And I, and I say this as a point that I've seen that be the model set. And a lot of these bands had amazing world success, corn being one of them that obviously it worked. So in the 2000 and 2010s, if you were a shit ass metal band that didn't have a fucking following, just throw them on a hardcore show. And because at this time I'm booking shows and I'm doing the fest, if I had a dollar for every broke ass band whose manager was like, dude, they're really going to blow up. This is going to be really good for you guys. And I'm like, why would it be good to take away a spot that I can give a hundred, 200 bucks to a hardcore band and help them to help your band get exposed when the first chance you guys get to hide behind a barricade and do all the shit we don't like what what's the fucking point of interacting i already know you're gonna leave you know like what am i doing this for winners and that's my position on it is from a promoter promoter point of view and a fan point of view where it's like yeah i listen to a lot of heavy. actually listen to really a lot of heavy metal but you know uh no weird nordic band with like pan flutes are ever gonna call me and ask me to play this article because i would say yes immediately but the metalcore shit that it isn't even core, it's just metal, but they don't have a fucking audience. It's always kind of bounced into hardcore at a very early stage and then ran with it, bought scrims and never see them a fucking again. And you guys weren't that fucking band. And yeah, I mean, yeah, because this is the early days of code and we're talking about this stage, this may bring to light newer fans who had a different presentation and idea of the roots of you guys is that, you guys weren't trying to get to this fucking matrix level that you guys were at now. It just organically grew out of the creativity and drive and your pursuit of pushing the band. And even though you have fucking, I don't know, a million different ideas that are way beyond the scope of what a hardcore band may sound like the drive, the DIY, the presence of mind to think about the fans, all these stuff are interconnected with all the spirit and the ethics within hardcore. So I don't care. You guys could literally go to all doing keytars. And if everything you're doing is for the same reason, I'm still going to be riding out. I mean, I mean, here, here, uh, one, I appreciate it, but here's the real, the facts on paper. The shit we just put out is harder than any of your, these fucking hardcore bands. So, I mean, take the hard and hardcore. If you want to just straight talk about music and forget all that, we have plenty of hard shit, plenty of hardcore shit. And we purposely, when we go to that place in our music, which we don't go to every single track at every moment, we go about as hard as you can possibly fucking go. And in a very calculated, murderous way. So to me, that's always been musically a balance that a lot, just to talk about the music, a line that I want to walk because that's what I want to hear because I love fucking hard, crazy music. I also love a lot of other kinds of music. And our vision is for this is to try to, you know, keep blending those kind of music into whatever it is we do. But that doesn't mean we're leaving. 
go listen to track one, two, and three on the last record we did. They're three of the hardest songs we've ever done. Not even, not even close. They probably are the three hardest songs we've ever done. And that's, there's a reason for that. So to me, that shit's just, you know, anything about us not being this or that. You know, one, a lot of the times the same bands you're talking about are the same bands that are pointing that finger at bands like us. So well, it's I mean, completely irrelevant to me. You know what I mean? One of the things that I always say about you specifically in, in, in the scheme of things is that you are the Ric Flair of your band. True or false? <laughs> I mean, I, let's be I'll real. fucking take it. I love Ric Flair. So being the Ric Flair of Code Orange, you got to go out there and tell the world how you're out there and kicking ass and no one's going to fucking stop you. And that's one of the things I think that people see and they, they take it for whatever it is. You know, uh, it's one of these things where people's attitudes towards bands are like, if this person goes ahead and says this kind of stuff, then that's not fucking cool. And yet I know a ton of bands who specifically say we're shit behind the stages. And so as you're talking and you're being prideful, I, I have to say that I'd rather hear this and like somebody fucking excited about their motherfucking band than sitting here and being like, you know, we really just do this whole thing for the kids. And our newest record is just really, you know, something that comes from our heart. And it's like these like um, Mad Lib kind of answers to questions is what you hear a lot of bands do. So when you talk about this stuff, I know the drive that's within you. And one of the things going back in linear time to what we were working on is through this whole stage where you're learning the process of touring with hardcore bands and you are like, uh, I'll tell you in uh, union work that I do, you start as an apprentice and you become a journeyman. This is your journeyman stage. You're no longer the apprentices. You're out there on this journey and you're learning the fucking ropes. You guys really hone down two things, how to be better live and that you needed to continue with the harder side of things because I remember seeing you on a terror opening on a terror thing. I think it was at our, uh, I think it was later on. It was in the beginning where like I am King was getting ready to come out or had come out. Yeah. And you guys it's had probably played. getting ready to come out at that. Time. It was not, ready to come not, out. Cause it was, yeah. uh, it was our keystone. It was our first keystone jam. And I remember that. Oh, we're fuck. sitting up. That was a fucking nightmare there. for me. We're sitting there and I'm watching some fucking goon motherfuckers who never knew who you were lighting people up. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And me and Richie, <laughs> Richie's like, yo, man, uh, this this guy, man, he's like, uh, you know, he's uh, these guys are really fucking going off. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I was upstairs talking to somebody coming down. I'm like, I, I was captivated, not by you guys on stage, but that you had immediately started winning over the most gooniest of crowds like true <laughs> that's true I, that's the best way to put it and it was actually like it wasn't a shock i was actually excited for you so i started like that was when the moment that i saw that i realized the all the shit i say about you guys being gummo and all that stuff is funny but like the presentation of you looking not the perfect look and the heaviness and the fact that you weren't holding your microphone and you're playing your drums and you're screaming and you got Goldman running around like a maniac and you got Reba sh like just fucking headbanging and these people are kicking ass over it. And it's like the, you know, 
the hard style crowd, man. I mean, that's when I realized like, okay, this thing's going to fucking work no matter what. Do you feel that after doing so many tours and not being known that you just like found your presence to just win people over? Or was that just the luck of the draw? No, I think it's a very interesting thing because right at that moment in time is where you saw the first case of us splitting our own audience in a, in a way that, you know, where with this has happened to us many times. We take an angle, we make a move and we lose a good amount of people. Actually, one of my close friends has said this. He's like, I've never seen a band had to build a new audience every time as much as you guys and lose half the people. And that's what happened right in that moment. We lost those people. That's because I knew and we knew what we wanted to do, which was, no, we don't want to just become this big, dumb guy, ignorant band, even though there's a lot of bands like that that I absolutely love and we loved before that and we loved going into that. But we thought, okay, with this record, we need to rebuild this house. We need to take what we've learned you know, and artistically, we had done Seven Inches and stuff that had all kind of built up to the first Death Wish record before I Am King. And that idea was done. There was nowhere else to go with that. So I thought, okay, we basically blueprinted this out. How do we rebuild this house? Okay, well, we need to keep the artful mind of what we have going on and continue to incorporate that so that we can really build on it later. But we need to really bring some of the raw hardness, the kind of stuff that had been we'd been hearing in our city to this to hard, back in a way, not, and not back in terms of, you know, there's always been bands like that that have been kicking around. But go look at that this is hardcore lineup of that year. Okay. The, the year that shit really popped off. I think it was 2014. There was us, there was incendiary, maybe harm's way. There was no like 20 heavy hardcore bands, as you know. Okay. So the yeah. shit was dead at the shit was dead at that point. So through people like my friend AJ, who you discussed, turning us on to this band, that band, the other band, through bands around here, through knowing what we had learned from even from Converge, through seeing things from these different angles, we thought, okay, this is an angle that's not being taken right now. And I know we can do it in a different way because we do have this artful mind. That is not going anywhere, but we need to strip some of the paint off and rebuild this foundation and make something that is a little bit more basic in some ways, but is still but still pushes it. And it's I need to you I know? need to and, and I need to just explain this to people who may not have the Google foo to uh, talk about what he's saying. The night we're talking about here started off with wrong answer, but then it went. Lifeless, Expire, Noisum, Zabalba, Code, Orange, when you're still kids, Ringworm, Overcast, Crowbar, Unearth, and Killswitch Engage. And I bring that lineup up to you and to say, like, you were handpicked to kick the shit out of that year's specific lineup. That's exactly where we wanted you because you're one of the few bands at that stage in that world that could play with all of those bands. And I knew and that was pretty much all the heavy bands that were on the fest were pretty much on one day. I mean, that was like, yeah, that was a, that was a heavy, that was a heavy and a metallic night. And I just remember 
And that was twenty four. That was twenty fourteen. That was a. Th- it was because I remember you're like, oh, the Thursday. I'm like, dude, wait till you see it. Did, and the, did we play the? Th- was the Thursday in the big room that year? Because the twenty. Yeah, was it? That was it. That was it. That was the that was the first Thursday of the big room, and that was a kill switch night. And you guys, what a great fucking, band on there! Yeah, like that was and, and and to to illustrate and back your point, everything you said came to pass. Like you were able to just fucking literally decimate the fucking crowd with that shit. And I remember, if I'm incorrect, uh, Sonny can tell me otherwise and get pissed off. But I was under the impression that you guys video was the first he had released that year specifically. And I remember, and I remember people legit changed our whole, it changed everything. That video for us, everything overnight. I'm not even joking. Literally the first show on the I am King tour, we played in Indianapolis. We were so used to playing shitty shows. I mean, on, all over okay we did that this is hardcore we were blown away we we're so happy and excited that we got you're this walking into unbelievable reaction tell the tell them who the other person was on the tour with you guys because this is important to the story i was getting to so they weren't on it yet but the tour yeah the tour was it was going to be called the kings of war tour so it was twitching tongues off there in love there is no law record and us uh on the i am king record and we were going to meet up and the first show we did was by ourselves in Indianapolis. We were super late to the show. It was the first show I think we did past this is hardcore. And we had van troubles. Like one of our tires exploded. So we're calling people are going to be late. Are you sure we should even come? The guy's like, dude, I think they're going to stay. We had played this same venue multiple times before. It was called the Hoosier Dome. And people who were there can attest to this. And, there, you know, it was, it was, it was always really fun shows, but there was basically no one there. We had a great time, but there was no one there. We get there. It's like hours after the show's supposed to be over. The place is fucking smack packed. And we were just like, what the fuck? We get up there. The show's insane. We sell more shit than we've ever sold in history at a show other than uh, this hardcore. And then every night on that tour was like that. And it was just like, boom. And again, Sonny, as you know, still again, like I was saying, you know, same circle, still work with him on everything to this day, work with him on uh all the live streams we've done he's unbelievably talented um doing that changed it i mean it really flipped the switch overnight and that was like when you know that tour and that record uh kind of collided and being like what i think was like a, a important moment at that time and 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 to go back on what i was saying there were as you mentioned lots of awesome heavy bands the ball ball lifeless who we became great friends with but just the angle we had on it i felt was different you know, and I think that no, collided in correct. that record. Absolutely, and and I don't think you I don't think you misrepresented yourself in that. I think that you had exactly put that. You were taking all that at. You were taking that same level of aggression and heaviness, and I think, you know, you just put your spin on it and and individualized your sound within that scope. So, um, I'll talk a little bit about Philadelphia, October. 2014 I knew the code and twitching tongues tour was going to do modestly well and I was and will always be a code super fan supporter boister whatever you want to call it I'm in I'm you know 
I'm I'm there. You're my boys. I was I was dying to see this, knowing that the record. And after that fest, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is gonna be nuts. And the Twitch and Tongues record is emotionally really tied into me. And I love, I really love that record. It's a great really, record. Like I love that record so much. And my my sisters, my sister, well, basically my brother-in-law, he played it so much that my nephews love uh the preacher man song and such. But fucking amazing record. For me, I'm a promoter of Philadelphia of plenty of years at that point. I think that I had never it witnessed what I witnessed that night. And it wasn't, oh, so much moshing. We couldn't. Do it. What I witnessed was the dawn of the new era of that stage of hardcore. And it hit me when I'm standing here. And I think I had, besides the Bob Wilson, Pennsylvania crew that comes to all the Philly hardcore shows and some of the Philly standards, there were so many fucking people from out of town, out of state. It's the first time I met uh, Corey, who obviously is uh, well-known for insane amounts of moshing out of Boston. Yeah, yeah, he's a good kid. And he had did a backflip off the bar, and I was like, hey, bud, we kind of don't do that here. And he's like, oh, my bad, man. But just seeing the energy and the new faces because of that tour, I always say to Bob Wilson when we're talking about, like, Crazy moments that are not crazy because someone's getting chopped in half, but crazy moments because the epiphany came early on when I'm like, this is a different time in hardcore now. Like we were officially like, it's like the, it was like the new year's day of a new era. And you guys, that tour brought that in, you know, the duality of the two bands and the two records brought in a different crowd than we had normally been having. And I always look back to that moment and I always look back to that specific time frame as like, that's when things in hardcore started to change more towards what is now more commonly popular today. And I the, agree. And the blueprint of the sounds that is most mimicked are from those bands, yours and Twitch and Tongues. And it's like one of these things where in four years I hope to God that you are not at Led Zeppelin level because it'd be cool to see you guys both tour on them records together again because that was a sp- and you're gonna remember is uh I was older than you guys and I'm, I'm no, we're not doing it I'm gonna tell you that right now. <laughs> I know I ain't I happening. Wanna, I'll make you I'll make you do a one off show for me then I'll Fuck do you. a show but I'm not doing the <laughs> Fuck fucking you. tour. <laughs> Fuck you <laughs> <laughs> I just love that was just a special time and it's it was it's, man it really it's fucking fucked, was it's fucked up to me because we're talking about in four years it'll be you know a 10 year thing so Jesus Christ that fucking sickens me to my core so I don't even want to fucking for, for talk me, about that <laughs> for me having you on this podcast today was a lot of fun in that I got to speak about earlier things with code because of so much of what I still see in you started in that time frame, and definitely, because, definitely, because you and I are close, and because I've interacted with your band so much, that I specifically feel that at times that because you guys are larger than life at times, and the presentations, especially in the most modern stages with these live streams, that you just 
seem like you're on completely other fucking planets that people don't realize or don't understand, or maybe not just not aware of this information of just how fucking DIY code orange still is to this day. And I mean, it's, it's not wrong because you're on a big record label. You're, you are Grammy nominated and you're going to play Coachella. It's hard by the normal viewpoint of bands that get to the size that you're at and the tours that you played and that met you know, the mayhem tours and all this other, you know, that monster drink tour that you did and all these metal tours yeah. that are way beyond the scope of a hardcore show. It's not their fault that they don't realize how much effort, time, love, blood, sweat, tears goes into this. And that was a big part of what I wanted to speak on with you. And I think that it, it always goes back to the beginning and, and some bands start in the beginning. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Motley Crue um, Netflix thing, but I didn't see that. No, <laughs> it's yeah. Certain bands start out one way in the beginning and then they go in a completely different direction because of success. And I don't see you resting on your laurels. And I think in, in presence of what we're talking about here now, no matter what stage we've spoke on and all the stages that have come since 2014, the one thing's clear is that Code Orange has never rested on laurels. And I think that I I know that I know where that drive is, but I wanted you to talk about why you've never stopped thinking about the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing and about always thinking like we still have to prove ourselves. Yeah, I mean part of it is my natural wiring part of it is true love for what we do and what we've been able to create and like you know i know we don't want to talk about it you know we said but you know the record we just did i fucking love it i love it more than any record that we've done i believe in it so deeply and that pushes us to continue to go you know when this whole thing came up you know and we don't have to get too into it but this quarantine shit and all that you know, we just, it's an, it's okay. We got to shift, you know? And like I said, we've gone through things where we've lost fans at times. We've gone to new audiences in a way, but one thing I want to say to like the young bands who are coming up the, you know, the bands from our scene, especially is, which now I think there are going to be, and there have been a lot more opportunities for than there even were five years ago, you know, uh, quickly is do not, Again, there's no need to stooge for people who don't give a fuck about you. But the people who give a fuck about you and that have put down for you and have done things for you to try to put you on a bigger level, don't fuck, you don't fucking forget about those, those people. You know, you bring up the Monster Energy Tour. You remember we did the Monster Energy Tour and we drove across the country and played This Is Hardcore and drove back across the country and went back to the fucking Monster Energy Tour. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back. That's to say it's doable. So when these bands first answer is no, as soon as they get a chance, no, we're not going to do it. We, whatever, I don't care if it's, this is hardcore, whatever your, this is hardcore is whatever your, your, your legs are, your base, your, your, you know, your, your roots, wherever that is, you don't fucking turn your back on that. And whatever that means to you, that doesn't mean you got to say yes to every motherfucker who wasn't there for you in the first place, but don't forget. You do not forget because 
when you forget, that's when you get disconnected. And something we will never be is disconnected from what, uh, g- what not only has gotten us where we're going, hopefully, but what made us love this shit. What, you know, like you talk about that tour, that, that was such a big turning point in all of our lives. We had dumped, we put a lot of work in before that. And that felt like the fruits of that. It's like, wow, this is fucking happening. People give a shit. And that is because of the bands we've been talking about. That's because of people, somebody like you putting us on this hardcore year after year after year. Because of Twitching Tongues, who I met at the New England Metal and Hardcore Festival, we were playing very early. They were playing next. And I didn't know them at all. And they came on stage and came up to the drum center. And I said, never heard you guys. You guys are fucking awesome. Like, what the fuck? Like, this is insane. And that made us feel so good. And I talked to those you know, Colin, especially the singer and Taylor as well. You know, I still know those guys very well to this day and uh, we'll always keep up with them. And so, you know, you don't got to fucking put every rat in your pocket, but don't forget. So that that's the main thing that I feel a lot of these bands, when they start to see these opportunities, because again, not to get long winded, but as you're talking about, right as us and Twitching Tongues is happening, you know, Turnstile is happening on the other side. And then you got power trip happening and all these awesome things that are really still going on now, six years later and have still have so many, much roots in the bands that are younger, you know, well, with, with, turn, with turnstile specifically the following February. So you guys played in October in Philadelphia. Yeah. The following February, we had booked them at voltage. And it's probably to this day, besides the judge show that I would do a year later, probably one of the most packed shows we've ever did at Voltage. And yes, I I just use the I use the presence of that code show as you know it's it's hard as a promoter at times because we have this is hardcore and we have a lot of shows where things are really jumping here and we're very 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 lucky that Philadelphia is well supported. So I use you and the Twitch and Tongues as a moment where I realized, like, I'm at the show. I booked it, and I know 25 or 30 people here besides the people. I don't know that many people because it was a new face. This is more where I was getting at. Definitely. No, totally. And, and, Definitely. So, and so, like, that same time period, you're absolutely correct. And it's actually typical of you to stand up and, 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 and shine on other people where you're talking about power trip and power trip the following year. Actually, you know what? No, no power trip. That same year closed out. No, no. 2014. They closed out. This is hardcore by playing an after show where the security maced everybody. Jesus Christ. It was raining on a Sunday and, the bad luck thing happened and we're trying to break everything down in the fucking rain. And I got a call, uh, problems at the pre at the after show, uh, someone, uh, the, the security maced some girl fight. You got to get over here. And I come over there and Tony Erba, who's a psycho band had also played that show as part of the thing came out with a lit cigarette. And he's like, Hey man, it wasn't me. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing in there? Tony's like, everyone got maced. And I remember what we were trying fuck? to dump water into people's eyes. And I remember talking to Riley. He's like, yo, this shit's so crazy. What the fuck? And fucking security maced this girl. And we're like, oh, man, that's nuts. And me and Greg Daly were just laughing about it. Like, it was like. That's fucking oh. insane. 
but that's the way this hardcore 2014 and it was a power trip after show at voltage with someone well, security macing well um, think of think about think about though what even like you know that's obviously a fucking insane story but think about all those bands happen like that at the same time bands that still and obviously rest in peace or riley have such a footing now i mean that's rare that was six years ago well that's and you still that's tur- where you know you still have I, these bands killing it it's ridiculous well, that's why i know? use that that's why i use your show specifically to for me as like a bookmark to be like oh fuck this is when everything was changing and it didn't change for worse it actually and i and i can tell you times where i've seen shows where uh-oh this is the end of one thing and the beginning of another this was like oh fuck these shows are packed these are newer people and that's the that's the error that we're still currently in started at that same time frame and it was really awesome to be a part of it and and you know get to foster some of your bands in these smaller rooms that it, you would it, you would fucking laugh at me now if I was like hey you want to play voltage you'd be like fuck you motherfucker <laughs> and dude, but at the time like yeah. again at the time and like that was dude that was such like that show that tour such a fucking moment for us personally and musically and like again and that this is hardcore and the next this is hardcore after that you know these moments like they live with me every day. They're, you know, it's not going anywhere. And I think that's, we've obviously grown just like a straight friendship over the years, but even without that, you know, it's not like, Oh, we, you know, I know you would never want it to be put this way, but like, I do feel some that we do owe some penance in some kind of ways because that was so, you know, instrumental to, us our growth and without those moments so many things wouldn't have happened and so i mean to me it's like i really do want to see that in the bands now still paying respect because that is a big part of what hardcore is whether people want to accept it or not whether the internet wants to accept it or not being able to look at the people who open the doors for you and you know be able to not necessarily do anything for them but just be able to put give them respect by uh you know playing your part you know it's important and you know again it's not something you got to do for people you don't have that respect for but if you do don't convince yourself that oh well what's more important is for us to do this thing to make us big we are i feel we're proof that you can do both things and we've done both things for a very long time and it takes extra effort but it's important and it's part of what makes hardcore what it is it's part of what makes hardcore different from all these other bullshit scenes quote unquote that don't even exist really there only is one scene it is hardcore well this is so this is this is, this is in, embedded in me at an early stage in my life booking shows was that i was a 16 year old kid who had long hair and would just write bands via letter and uh the amazing song stepping stone from minor threat comes into play in a lot of this where i was only getting spoken to because i had the opportunity to facilitate potentially putting bands on shows and it's like an evil power that has to be used for good and i've always taken it with a grain of salt and that's why i think i even told you like i don't talk about who's playing the fest next year during a fest i call it the honeymoon because you're like yeah. you're so psyched that the band is playing. You're like, and they're like, dude, we gotta play next year. And obviously, I, I'm so psyched. I'm like, yeah, we gotta do it next year. 
and I had to learn to like, nope, let's let's let the honeymoon phase of this awesome set wear out, and then we'll talk about next year. But when it comes to me and what I see in bands, I, I grew up in a hardcore scene that had a lot of different flavors, and I grew up uh, enjoying more than just hardcore. And I came from metal, and you know, um, there were not girls at the volume that there is now at hardcore shows so like me chris x and a lot of the hardcore guys we were going to goth nights and we were really exposed to industrial and all this stuff and so i've always had a wider berth of what i enjoy listening to at home and so when code came and you guys were already a little bit out of the box and then you guys moved the windows you know you guys move where you're headed every single time I've always felt that I was lucky to be able to give you guys any bit of help because it's a fucked up world out here. And there's a lot about personal preference and a lot about presentation and looks and who do these people know? And honestly, you know, I saw people who were behind you like AJ and people who are like, and you know, you're from PA and I'm like, Bob Wilson was like, yeah, man, you know, we met these kids and they're fucking cool. Put them on a show. And the way that you guys were like, yo, fuck you, we'll fucking fly her. And I'm like, all right, this is a band who's not a bunch of pussies and they're not trying to just show up and be like, hey, we did a show, fuck you. And um, exactly. The um, What's cool is you guys actually play with Carl Picaro. I always say that, I always say that word wrong. Carl Picaro, who is in Breakdown and Killing Time, you played in a, in a loner crowd. You played a show with his band, Kings Destroy, which is like completely crazy, doomish. And what the know, fuck like, was that? That was the that was the show we did at the Barbary. And oh, you guys played was, that. Was show. that the one with Give, or was that a different one? That was a different show. The Give show oh, was first, oh, and yeah, then you guys. Oh yeah, yeah And yeah, then yeah, yeah. you did me a solid, and you played with Kings Destroy, and that was oh, another yes, moment yes. early on when people didn't really know either band and didn't know that. You know, one of the greatest New York hardcore guitar players of all time. It just happened to also be in a metal band, but you were just open and hungry. And I find that another stage in hardcore bands that aggravates the fuck out of me is, hey, we really just want to play some shows, man. Whatever you got. Hey, I got this thing. Oh, the minute it's not something they really want, it's kind of like, uh, nah, we actually only want this from you. We don't want that. And that was... Not a not not a test to see what you guys would do, but it was an honest thing where here you are, you know, you don't you don't have a giant crowd, but you're like fuck it, we'll play again, we'll play this thing, and I and it meant a lot to me that as I was trying to figure a way to build out Carl's band with some people that I think would musically work and it'd be cool, there was no like oh fine. We'll do it for you, Joe, because you know, like it, it was just so natural. And I, and I, uh oh, what's going on with your voice? No, 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 no. You know, yeah. what I'll say is, can you hear me? Yeah, you switched up, but now you sound good. Oh, okay, my bad. What I'll say is that I think, again, like at that time, that is the mentality we have. And over time, have we become and did we become more? what do you want to call it? I guess picky in terms of what it is we did and didn't want to do. Absolutely. And there's actually been times where that's, I mean, to a certain degree, but you're not going to see that with you because 
again, you are somebody that I have a lot of care and respect and admiration for and trust. So, you know, when you start to, again, another thing that comes with starting to get more popular or whatever is all kinds of people are coming left and right and center with, oh, do this, do that, do that. And yeah, we did become, there was a time where we became, I think, a little bit closed off to things. But again, like if, if it's somebody that we, if it's not, not it's not, again, it's, it was that, like you're saying, it was never like, oh yeah, we'll do it. We were excited to do it. We were psyched to do it. But it's like, it, it root, it's rooted in a place of mutual trust and respect. You know? Absolutely. And that's still where we operate from a place from. 100%. No, that's that's the dynamic of our friendship and relationship is it's a mutual respect. And so, and, and you touched on something that I, I wanted to, to speak on is that the hard thing that peer promoters have to learn, and some do, some don't, is that you have to book every band with the proper intention of, in my opinion, like, hey, I'm trying to help this band out. Or, hey, this band is going to be cool and it'll be fun. And if they can never play for you again, it's natural emotionally be like, Hey, fuck that. I, you know, like we, you know, we should have did this show or, you know, it's, it does come, I won't say territorial, but it's like emotionally territorial. Cause you, you sure. really enjoy doing work with the band. But the one thing that I learned over time is that you got to let bands grow and you got to accept that they're not always going to be able to do everything you need them to do, or you would like to help them with. And, and I made mistakes in that as a promoter being frustrated and, speaking my mind on being frustrated at the band instead of just respecting like, all right, you know, maybe it's not going to happen this time. And it, it was a hard lesson for me to be learned. And I'm glad that we never really had that phase with code with that, because you guys have always been so dedicated and excited about this hardcore to the point where when I was SOL on a headliner, I had to like fucking twist your arm and you still came through. And it's one of the greatest but saddest things that I ever had to ask for was like, dude, I really need a headline. And you made it work. And what fucks me up is you are such a dickhead that you wouldn't just tell me, listen, I'm going to sing for code orange and I can't, I, I, I'm, I have a different yeah, drummer. Like, you exactly. Yo, you were <laughs> such a dick because I, I, you, I didn't want to fucking say it. I was like, if you, if you, like, would have, uh, if you would have fucking said that to me, I would have said, Oh shit. I feel like it's like, it's the biggest jerk off on earth realizing that you were setting up this fucking presentation. We had to go, we had to go back and like, Dude, I've, and, and yeah, so, exactly. so, now, so you, now you get it. And, and, well, I got it. I got it. So this is where we're talking about. Cause you were talking about the, the record. Yeah. Like the minute the fucking video comes out and you're not behind the drums. I'm like, fuck, I'm a fucking jerk off. Fuck. <laughs> no, no, and dude. You know like, what though? It, dude, it seriously ended up being such a blessing in disguise because we were so, in my opinion, fucking like musically ready and like on the grind. We were making that record. We were so fucking tight and like together that that performance we did it that this is hardcore and that video musically and like performance wise, I think on our on our end is one of the best performances, if not the best performance on video that we have, especially in a hardcore setting from that era of the band. So we really did get to cap off that era of the band with the performance. And I'm like, honestly, musically and artistically with the way we did the set, all the stuff we integrated that was coming that people didn't really know was coming, but I wanted them to be able to watch and retrospect and see 
and at the same time closing the book on some of the super old stuff. We threw some stuff in from there in, in a way that I'm really proud of. Like, I love that set. That's one of my favorite sets we've done musically. Like from all that makes me happy. Cause I like, so I, I was sitting here with my wife and I showed her the video and I was like, and she's like, Oh, he, he's on the drummer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's just full ass singing. And I explained him and she's like, Oh, you like bullied them. I'm like, I didn't bully them, but like I begged them basically. And cause you're the fucking man. You're like, all right, we're going to make this happen. Oh, and then, I mean, dude, I don't know. But the thing I is, mean, is like, I just, I wanted to just, cause this is a public forum. Just say that that added a layer of guilt. Like, fuck man. Like, fuck I got, no, dude. Well, to, well, I'm allowed to feel the way I feel. And I, and, I was sure, saying, sure. and I'm speaking to you from the heart saying that speaking on what we were talking about, about the dedication is there's also a mutual end of the reciprocal relationship where a promoter has to know that uh, sometimes a band just can't make this work and it is what it is. And we're still best friends and we're still going to fucking share milkshakes and do jujitsu together. And I, I just, that video that came out and just seeing you in a different presence just made me feel like it's complete jerk off. And I never got the verbal <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You never even told me that. That cracks me up. Cause dude, I wanted to tell you on the phone when you were telling me this, I was like, I was trying, like, I remember you were telling me and I was like, dude, <laughs> yeah. I want to do it. But like, we're, we're, trying, so, we're really knee deep in something else right now. Like we're trying and, and to set this, so, this whole set thing this up. up. We'll set this up. <laughs> on the tour where you were, uh, touring in the winter time and we had butchers at the church yes. i saw the beginning of a mutation in the band and like i always say you that was guys the first tour on forever that was the first headline tour on forever yeah on so you uh i always say that that's the moment i realized oh the gummo dudes are now all in the matrix fuck but... you i'm sick of these fucking comparisons <laughs> shove it up your ass gummo into the fucking matrix um but you guys came out with like the fucking full since you had the whole thing. And I just remember being on stage. You had like literally like the fucking presence of just a different animal and the confidence to be able to get on the first Unitarian stage after what did we do? We'd had Jesus peace on the thing. We had like all the goonish shit ever. And you yeah. guys get on there and it was just, insane to see the crowd react with such positivity to like the ambiance and the aesthetic and the extra of the um i don't want to use the wrong term so if i say industrial does that bum you out no 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 not at all no i mean there's like that, that element I, was seeping more into it for sure there, i mean yeah, we, like, we had I, incorporated a little bit of it but I, yeah. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it because I, I had gone and seen KMFDM and I've seen so many. I mean, the fucking list of bands I've seen in the early 90s that were digital and uh, I won't use EDM, but like a digital representation musically with like guitars and like electric drums. Those are some of my favorite shows to see at the Trocadero at that time. And uh, I was just mesmerized that at the first Unitarian church, you guys were the band that I saw way back, just constantly taking it to a new level. And I have to ask, like, where in the evolution did you guys start really thinking about adding this whole different layer with the with the non-traditional hardcore instruments and the industrial era? Well, it started really early with just experimenting with like doing stuff on guitar pedals. Like we were, if you go back and watch even like our first, this is hardcore 
sets we would do which is now a very very popular thing we're definitely not the first ones to do it but it wasn't as popular then these kind of looping in between things that we would play live and stuff and do on guitar that these kind of like noisy loops and stuff like that so it started with them being interested in that and then on i am king we had done in in the after a very small amount of synth stuff there's a little bit of couple songs like a song your body is ready the song mercy the song dreams and inertia where there are other starve where there is not only these melodic elements but there are more uh key elements that very that are very basic and then shade from that record just started falling down the rabbit hole of getting really good at that stuff and interested so we cool. did you know, he teach himself or was he like was that yes. something that he had picked up from going to school and stuff. Like, how did he actually start no. getting into all that? He taught himself. I mean, he really did teach himself just from guitar translating to uh, to keys and learning programming. And he, yeah, again, like we we'd always experimented with with this kind of stuff, even on the early early records, not in an industrial way, but just in terms of layering and and having weird sounds. And you know, again, it started with kind of like the pedals. And then it kept progressing. And then we were going in, you know, on I Am King. While touring on I Am King, things started to met. Uh, we kind of saw, okay, this is the next thing that we can add in in our way. Um, and you could see throughout the tours, us kind of growing and changing in that kind of way. To buy when we were touring on I Am King at the end, it's kind of the same band that comes out with forever, just because that's how it naturally happens. But obviously, you know, we don't have a record and all this stuff to showcase that. So, then we gear up for forever and he just keeps going down the, the rabbit hole of that stuff. And he's a fucking, turns out he's a fucking genius and he's just getting better and better and getting crazier and crazier. And we're, we're incorporating, we're finding cool ways to do it. We have all these, you know, sonic ideas. We like themes and uh, not even just to, Oh, we want to take this and add synths to it. You know, that record was very much, um, and so was I Am King in a way, but it was like the way we would approach it was more like making a movie than just making a bunch of songs. Everything fit its little spot. And in order to really personify that, we needed more instruments. But again, we didn't want to lose the, the core and the heart. Um, so every one of these records, if you really listen to them in a row, is just a build off of the last one. I mean, you could see the first one, Return to Dust to I Am King, is a little bit of a shift. But some of the stuff we used to do way back then, we're doing on this newest record, you know? So it's just a gradual build of adding layers and adding layers and adding elements to now it's just fully, absolutely batshit psychotic. But that's just, that's the progression of how it's gone, you know? And that's visually, that's uh, sonically, that's in the videos. You know, all those three records have common threads, have themes, have idea there's ideas from i am king sonically that come back on this record and that we're on forever and you know it's all kind of been engineered in that way almost like three movies as opposed to you know a bunch of group of songs it's just not the way we write so it just was a natural progression to illustrate that to make music that felt more like something you could touch or feel or look at in the way that we wanted to make it more you know four-dimensional make it make it uh, something that jumps out out the screen, not just something that you're watching flat. So that's it. Just felt natural, and it's felt natural all along. And he just keeps getting better, and we keep finding new ways to use it that I think are helping challenge the genre 
as a whole and helping, if not challenge, you know, do some, make a little bit of a different concoction out of things people, you know, might already like, you know, and I think it is absolutely a different concoction. So I want to shift gears and go into the uh, lair that Code Orange dwells in and creates in. So obviously we had the Philadelphia house and then we had the return to Pittsburgh. You guys were living in Braddock or Pittsburgh when you came back? Pittsburgh. I mean, most of us, when we first came back, lived just with our parents for a couple months, those of us who could, and then we moved out and now it's pretty much the same situation, which is me, Joe and Dom live together. Um, Eric lives with his girlfriend and has a little setup and Reba lives in Braddock with another friend. So we all are just constantly at each other's houses, but me, Dom and Joe have been living together pretty much since then. So for the past six years, uh, was there a time when you guys all lived in one house? No, not when we all lived. I mean, there's been times where we were all kind of living in the same house, but not like permanently. No, we've all lived uh, very close proximity. I mean, where I mean, I was literally just at Eric's house for the past eleven hours before this thing. So, I mean, it's the same shit every single day. We're either here, there, or somewhere in between. I mean, I see them. I see them every day. I mean, that's there's not one day that's gone by that I don't. I I see the people in my band. I mean, if if two days went by and I didn't see every member of my band, I would be it would be a, a weird week, you know. Well, I think that that adds to the level of detail to the story and that a lot of people who tour and have such a combined like effort of body of work, you always hear, like, oh, I need space. I have to like not see these guys forever. But you guys aren't like that. Where do you think that no. comes from that you guys are bonded so tightly that you don't want to have a day where you don't see each other? Because we fight it out. We talk it out. We love it out. We... You know, there's been times we don't see each other for a very small amount of time, but I mean, I mean, it's rare. You're, yeah, it's you're, very no, rare. We're not going by we're not going by code standards, but like a regular a regular band, almost yes. like gets excited about not seeing each other. And I've never seen that yes. with code because you guys are like a happen. gang. Yeah, it literally doesn't happen. It, there's not time. There's not time to not see each other when you're on a fucking path. When you're on a war path, what is there time for me to do that's not seeing them? What do I want to do? Do I want to sit around and bask in my fucking very okay life? No, I don't want that for myself. They don't want that for themselves. So we go to work every fucking day. Every day during this quarantine, we go to work. And that's what we do. It's just what we're wired to do because we have goals that we have to achieve. It's just like any goals. We are very blessed to, again, be able to on a very, you know, on a very, very modest scale do this as I guess what you'd want to call it a job. And we treat it like more than a job. We treat it like a fucking lifestyle. And if you don't, I got no, and you want, you want it. If this is what you want, music, whatever. And you don't do that. I have absolutely no sympathy for you. And that's pretty much it. You know? No. And I think that this goes back to the drive, but also what we was getting to and why I was kind of setting this up is you are around each other so much and the way the band has progressed in the way of music and opening influences that go beyond the standard metal and hard rock stuff 
how much of that is infused by just all of you guys having a collective um like you, you obviously watch movies together you obviously like share music that you guys are enjoying what do you think the most influential like movies have been in the last couple of years for you as far as like a group that you guys are psyched on as you're being this insane group of gang people ready to just take over the world with your music that's a good question i mean yeah we're i'm so inspired by so many so many things in that regard i know like shade is obviously everyone's into a little bit of different stuff but we all kind of come together like dominic is actually really into i want to say really into but he is very uh deep in like the horror world in terms of knowledge and you know a lot of like if you've heard any kind of snuff film based samples or anything he's probably the one we sent to dig him up you know with all he's got an insane tape collection that he uh he he he's in you know shades very into sci-fi and anime as you can tell i absolutely fucking hate anime but reba and shade love anime uh and science fiction and fucking weird robot shit um I mean, we're, we're inspired all the time. I can remember even like a couple years when we were, uh, I remember when that movie uh, Hereditary came out, which I fucking love that movie. Uh, I went into the bathroom at AMC Lowe's and wrote the, uh, wrote the fucking rabbit hole piano thing on my phone and then went back and sat in the fucking theater. Stop. And that ended up being the, swear to God, I swear to God in my life. So you were watching this movie. Was it over? No. So you just had this, I got to write this down right now. One, it was filling me with such tremendous dread that I needed to get out of there for a second because I was just like, this is so beyond fucking stressful for me for some reason. And I had, yeah, this, the melody kind of came to me or hopefully I didn't steal it or I don't know, but I just ran in the fucking bathroom and recorded that shit, pretending to take a shit. And then that was it. went back and sat down and I was like, it's pretty sick. And I sent it to Reba and Eric and we started building that song literally based off of that so there we go now it's the first song on the record you're so that's so fucking cool that's how i'm I'm always jotting stuff down in that kind of way i'm always i can't i i truly can't disconnect it is a true problem in terms of like i can't i mean sometimes there's you know there's there's I've been with the same girl for like six years or seven maybe seven years at this point so there's times where i can disconnect with that but outside of that if I'm watching a movie, if I'm listening to something, if I'm listening to any music, if I'm listening to seeing things on the street, I can't disconnect from that and taking something and trying to incorporate it into art. You know, it's like it it plagues me. It haunts me. It follows me. The intrusive thoughts like of like, fuck, I better like write something down about this, you know, and try to incorporate. I mean, that's why for this record underneath, I have photo books of of, of hundreds of photos I printed out and like fucking glued into a book and a full notebook and a full fucking uh, broken ass computer from 2008 of just like uh, notes and notes and notes and ideas behind each song and ideas behind each line notated out of every single song on the whole fucking record, you know? So that's where I, insp- that's, that's just kind of the way I, I uh, am wired. And sometimes it definitely, is uh sucks to be honest but well sometimes great two things i'm going to take away from this or at least my take from this would be number one is as a guy who had been on tour and knows a lot of people that tour i find the people who are able to keep a steady uh relationship with a significant other 
are far more driven towards productivity and positive outlets because they're not on tour chasing whatever it is that they're looking for. You know, they got, they got what they got at home. They're not chasing it out there and it makes life a little easier because you're like, yo, this is fucking business. And um, I toured for many years uh, in a committed relationship. Never really went out a line of that because I was so focused on different things that it was never even seen as like, here's my chance to hook up. You know, I'm too fucking busy. So I think that's a positive, and I think that's possibly why. Super, super, yes. um, I think that also for someone so driven, you're not capable of like building a new relationship with a new human. So you need someone like her who can just lock into you and go, I know him, we got something, we're good, and you can just rock out. So it's a good thing. No, and and dude, like, like I never talk about this shit in like interviews or anything, but you're my friend, so I'll talk to you about it, obviously. But I mean, yeah, my fucking chick has been not only so supportive and and amazing through through everything that we do. She loves every fucking thing that we do, which is it's it is really important to me. You know, she is totally, you know, it's is is a total at this point foundation of my life of keeping me keeping me on the straight path and keeping me on the path to where we need to go. And it makes it so when I'm writing a record, I can really write about things because I'm not writing about that because that is something that I feel very safe and set in. And it's a piece that I have is with that end of my life. Well, it sounds like balance. It is balance. It, It allows me to access the fucking disdain and disgust that i feel towards other things that have nothing to do with uh with a relationship and i think that that also hopefully gives us a different angle than maybe what some people are writing about so there's so many benefits to it but most importantly it's absolutely kept i'm a certified anyone who's listening to this will be able to tell i'm certified absolute psychotic person so to be able to have that you know base is is and just someone who's so great and supportive and caring and loving and you know I, again it feels weird talking about because i've never spoke about it in an interview but you know it, it it is something very important it does help me um it does help me just go it's like just go this is good and i and i water that i take care of that and i can balance that but uh, she knows the same thing and i it's funny because i told her the same thing that i told reba at the beginning which is like, you know, this band, like I, it's, it's always going to be this band. It's always going to be drop everything at a hat for this band. And she respects that and understands that and has been very supportive of that. So. No, I think that one of the things that people, um, especially younger people feel is that while the, while the, uh, the getting's good, they rush out to get it. And really, um, the mistake is not finding someone that you can find balance with. I mean, as you're talking about this, you know, um, my wife is upstairs either sleeping or just chilling because she knows I'm doing a podcast and she could probably write an entire book of every time we were out somewhere. And I had a, I had to stop walking out of restaurants because I would get a phone call about a show and I had to prioritize our time with her because it was fucking our life up. And now I find the balance of being able to feel like there's times when I work from home 
because you know I pour concrete for a living, so I don't have this office yes. life, and then I have all this home time. My home time, and with the intrusion of social media and a telephone, is I'm at the whim of someone calling me or emailing me and having to like I got to drop things and do this. And I have yeah, you're working call. manual labor all fucking day. You yeah, can't be so, on your phone, dude. So I found very similarly with myself and my own relationship that being honest about, Hey, these are the priorities that someone has in their life. And then making sure that you try to include them, you know, like uh, my wife is one of the biggest supporters of the podcast while our home life is disrupted because I have, I don't have the space to have like a, a perfect office. And so yeah, of course the world, the world that you live in is better for having balance. And I won't call you psychotic. I'll say that you fit in line with, Every single person that I've had on this podcast, which the attributes constantly remain the same and they're not meant to be, you know, you are creative, you're artistic, you are driven and, and you're confident. And I think that the people that do these kind of things and achieve what you achieve have to have those attributes. And if they don't have them in any order, it doesn't matter which one is the more dominant one at any stage. These are the successful people because that's the inertia you need you need a combination or in your situation what i see a lot and what we're speaking of you haven't said so much like oh i brought this movie around everybody and i made it my idea you constantly remind us Fuck that no so many of these ideas that are code are from the 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 brains of these other guys and that's so yes. fucking that's so fucking important in a band that's going to stay healthy is that everybody gets to share in the growth of the band and gets to put their mark on the band. And I, and I know there's metal bands. I'm a huge fucking fan of some of them where the guitar player and the, and, the, and someone else goes out and writes everything and they go, that's pretty the much all. That's pretty much every single one of them, to be honest, but yes. Yeah. And that's the thing is, is the beauty and code as you've grown and you've accepted the influences that the others had has been, it's like an open, and I use the term a lot in other podcasts, an open source. Like, oh, this is what you're drawing from? Put it in. Put it in the pot. Let's go. We'll make it work. Put it in the pot, you know? And so I have to ask the question is, since everything seems to go well, what do you think in the terms of code is one of the hardest decisions that you guys can all come together and agree on? Um, just minor details. I mean, there also is, there is the element that sometimes we disagree on that, you know, sometimes they need a little breath of fresh air, a breath of fresh air. You can't push, you know, something I tend to do is. I was, you're actually funny. Said it, you know, I was going to ask you that next, but yeah, so go into this now. Yeah, no. So, so, you know, is, you know, okay. Ideas done, right? We did it. This just happened. This always happened, and they're sickened by it. We did it. It's done. It's like I'm on to the next idea, like then. Like I'm on the phone about the next idea then. Like you already knew about the next idea before this last one. You know, so it's already in motion. And sometimes that can be overwhelming and stressful for them. And I'm trying to learn about that and learn about the boundaries of that a little bit more. Cause they all just told me, I'm not going to say what it is, but we're going to do something on Halloween coming up. And they were all at the house and they're about to walk out and they just, and Reba just goes, yeah, by the way, uh, we all said we're turning our phones off on November 1st. Okay. Bye. And then they just left. 
So whenever I'm not around, they're definitely plotting to disappear because it's just a, you know, they're afraid I'm going to call them about like the Christmas special or whatever the fuck we're going to stupid ass thing. I'm going to try to get them to do, you know? So no, there's I, that, uh, but I, I find that, I find that it's sometimes hard to not have someone who matches your energy, but at the same time as we all as a group, sometimes like Bob Wilson, uh, doesn't want to always pick up the phone at one in the morning. If I call, I don't know why, why wouldn't someone want it? Why would someone <laughs> not? Wanna, why would someone not want to speak to me as I've called three times that day to speak about craziest shit ever? And I've had to learn. <laughs> I've had to learn the balance point within my own friendships and within my own working relationships. Uh, you've met Juice. Juice is another one. Yeah. You know, Juice is a, a quiet mind, but he's a he's a killer. Maddie's the same way. You know, like when I start getting onto things. I think that they have a secret world where they talk amongst them. Oh, no, Joe's calling people. This can't be good. Like everyone ignore them because when I get ramped up, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. Yeah, now, exactly. Uh, one of the things that probably people may not realize because of all the fucking time that you put into this band is that you managed to fulfill a bit of mind and body uh, relaxation and kind of like outlet through Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I really wanted to get you to speak on what got you to get on the mats for the first time yeah I think there's a mixture of things one I think a couple of us you know especially me and Joe were just searching for something something else we could do that could you know that would challenge us in a different way um and we wanted to learn how to defend ourselves. I mean, it's that, that's that simple. I mean, we were never fucking uh, gonna want, gonna back down from anything. But certainly, I know now more than than ever that we were absolutely not capable of defending ourselves at the time, and we needed to be. And there was conflict around us at times that could have turned one way or another, and we wouldn't have been. So it was a mixture of those things. The idea that it was brought to us by people from our same, uh, you know, from our community, from the hardcore scene. And, uh, you know, so that helped kind of connect the connect the, the dots. And then we just fell in love with it. I mean, me and him especially fell in love with it. And we've been training ever since. It's been six something years. And it's just something where I can go and I can in a, I, my brain's on, but I can turn it off. I can, I can switch the dial. It's really the only time I can switch the dial. Like I said, I can, you know, it's, it's pretty much this, what we're talking about all day. And then, you know, there's times in my personal life with my girlfriend or whatever, I can turn it off to an extent, but jujitsu it's off anything with this band or any of that shit. It's fucking fully off. It's just about learning. And then at times it's just about not getting fucked up and fucking somebody else off. So it's simple, you know, and it, now, it, I found that to be therapeutic in a lot of ways. And it's been really amazing for my life. Was it easy because Jake, your professor was a part of Pencil, uh, Pittsburgh hardcore or did you yes. get introduced to him through someone else? I was introduced to him by AJ. <laughs> same, so same shit. Uh, and he's like, you need to go roll or did you, how did, how he did came you, with us, he came with us too. They all, a bunch of, a bunch of hardcore guys came with us and then they all ended up kind of dropping out except for us. And but we I'm just saying, connected what, with it. what was the, did you, 
I literally want to know what was the final motivation. Did you say, fuck it, today's the day I'm going to go. I know this guy, we're going to show up. Or did he, like, how yeah. did that, okay. We, we all kind of went in a pack, you know, and Joe was the one who actually called Jake. And, and Jake still tells a story. He was like, yo, are there some, like, jujitsu class or something? And Jake's like, yeah, I'm teaching. He's like, well, I think we're all going to show up. And he's like, all right. And that's just kind of how Joe is. And uh, that's not something I would do, but it's something he would do. And it's it's all great. And he did that, and he made us feel super welcome. And then, yeah, we fell in love with it. And it's a lot of guys kind of splintered into other things. We stayed with it, and that was it, and we're still with it. And that's, that's just kind of how we are, you know? So for those who have listened to this podcast as of right now, during the punishment of – Jamie with me saying, Hey, I really want you to play the fast. We had our headliner drop out. Often our conversations would stop with, Yo, dude, from me. Yo, Jamie, I'm about to hit class. I'll call you after jiu-jitsu class. And there was this immediate respect where you're like, I understand. Go do jujitsu. We will discuss this after jujitsu. And of course. To echo what you said, Especially one, with your fucking coach, you better not walk in there with a phone or anything or get your ass killed. I have <laughs> I never, <laughs> I have never, I have never walked into that school on a telephone call. Fuck no, dude. In front of Jared, and I will never walk into that school in front of, I, especially if he's in the. Oh my god, I don't even know what he does. Would do if he saw I'm someone. I'm scared walk. of shit of him. I mean, I would, I would never do that. I, I never do that in my class. I never do that in my class. And my coach is one of my ever, and my coach is like one of my best friends. So I'm certainly not fucking doing it in front of Jared. You know what I'm saying? We 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 find the same escapism mentally that comes from jujitsu, and I often get stuck in this like you know the circle of people who talk about jujitsu to people who don't do it. So it's cool to hear you say the exact same thing that I've been saying. I had a hard day. Fuck it, I'm going to jujitsu. Oh, of course. Something bad's going on in your life right now. Go to jujitsu. It's like a, it's like a, it's like I say sometimes it's like if your entire emotions were flushed down a toilet because someone was choking you and you had to fucking focus on that. And it gives such a perspective into what peace of mind is, even while you're still exacting like technical violence on people. And because yes. it's jujitsu, I guess you could probably do shit on your own. It's such a social activity with quietness because you can't talk. I mean, I might fuck around and talk or say something funny at, to, if, if I'm with a partner who I train with often, but in my yeah. school, that's not really what we do. And you don't really make no, a habit not. of talking while we're rolling, no. but every once in a while I, I, I can't help but laugh. Cause it's like, Oh, you're going to go here now. But I, I have found that the people who need jujitsu are people like yourself. And I, you obviously have been going for three times as long as I've been going. And it was cool to kind of be like, fuck, we're going to have to roll with the code dudes at some point. And we still haven't done it. And I'm glad that you are in some ways an ambassador of jujitsu to some degree by saying that because people get off on the wrong foot with what they think jujitsu could be for people. And um, it's just cool to see some person like yourself. You are absolutely insanely artistic insanely busy but you still manage to make training a thing and i I, to, man. And, and i and i and like uh i have so many like uh, uh billy from biohazard i was texting with him about something involving jared and uh he's like yo 
whatever you do, don't stop training. And then I was like, oh, how's it going? He's like, I just hurt myself. I can't train right now. I'm like, fuck. And you immediately feel bad when someone you know can't train. because well, I'm going through training. it too. I'm going through that too right now again for the millionth time. And it's so hard because it's this immediate empathy. Like, oh, fuck, he can't train. That sucks. Like, you're never like, you fucking idiot. You're always like, damn, that's terrible because you understand the mindset of not training just fucks you up and puts you in even a downward spiral more. So yes, I'm really glad does. we get to talk a little bit about jujitsu, but right now what I'm going to do it. is I'm going to fire off some quick ones and then we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. What was their first favorite record? Oh, fuck. I, I don't care if it was six years shit. old, that it was Michael Jackson. I don't care what it is. This Maybe is a no, like... this is a no, this is a no judging zone. Maybe I'm trying to think. I like Green Day, American Idiot. Okay, it was like my first like fate. Like I would have, what I would have been like ten at the time. Yeah, so I mean, but but I also really liked. I remember like the first like punkish shit I got into through really through my dad actually was like Sex Pistols and then like Black Flag and Minor Threat and then what was even more accessible was when that Green Day record blew up and. Those are probably that was probably like my first favorite shit. And the other first concert I ever went to was Lincoln Park. So well, I mean they were fucking huge. My mom loves them. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it holds up that good now, but shit was was sick then. Well, why I ask you that is to go into the next one. When you guys are traveling on the road, how what's the music to I mean like Obviously, people probably think you guys just listen to like just dissonant noise and white noise. But like, what are you guys listening to yeah. in the van while you guys are tra- while you guys are traveling on these tours? I make sure about like t- a lot of hip hop, like all kinds of new hip hop. That was we were definitely very inspired by a lot of the newer electronic and hip hop production styles, uh, and like even just soundtrack, like production styles, wanting to incorporate that in with like the classics. Everything like fucking a big big metal favorites would be like pantera uh dominic's favorite band of all time is typo negative and metallica uh allison chains um my favorite band is nine inch nails but then of course like all the a lot of the pittsburgh bands we listen to a lot like like you mentioned earlier enemy mind or uh i mean there's new all kinds of good one is the new one-on-one is hard one-on-one yeah that's uh diggums and greenfield from I got to sing on it. I sound like oh, shit. Oh, that's fucking awesome. You sounded bad. <laughs> Mike Mike uh, does this thing with his voice where he does like the death metal thing. And I was just being a goon. And I and I, I wish I did it better. So Mike, you're telling- I want to say something right now. And uh, Mike needs to know this. Mike is one of the most underrated, sickest hardcore vocalists of all time. 100%. Absolutely. He is fucking unreal. Dude, it the shit it's just like there I can count on one hand vocalists who just it's so it feels so fucking hard. Like there's I know something what it does. so real about it. It's it, just unbelievable. If he was a pussy, he would write about like some fantasy shit and he would just be in like some like third rate like scrim death metal deathcore band. But since yeah. he's such a real G, he's got to talk about punching you and beating you the fuck up. And every time he sees yeah. you. And it never gets old. Yeah, because it's, the enemy it's on, real. The enemy mind lyrics are like poetic and how psychotic they are. 
They're well, just the like, is, literally the fucking craziest his, thing they'll ever hear. His, his anger and like malice towards humanity coupled with his ability to technically control his voice and just make it as menacing as possible. I think I could probably teach myself that, but that's way too much effort and I'm too much of a fucking dude. He's a, he's a fucking special talent. Like, you know, the way his flow is ridiculous. Number one is he asked me to come in and do a guest vocal and he hands me an iPad. I could barely use an iPad and I'm like, we're not writing lyrics. And he said, no, man. And I'm like, he ha- he is like a producer when it comes to the shit he does. Yes. And, anyway, I go off the tangent, but the reason we're talking about this music thing is that you 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 answered the question that I was going to get to with that. It seems like even when you're listening to music for leisure, that you're constantly recycling ideas and thinking about things. And I wonder if there's is there ever something that you guys, when you're all together, you guys don't draw uh, like. How we can, you know, what can we do with this? Or, or is there ever a time when your brain? Yeah, settled? yes, yeah. When we, well, when is I that? I think every everybody does it in the van, just putting on like any bullshit comedy music that we can possibly listen to, like anything that makes us laugh or is just stupid. That probably takes up half the time. It's just trying to listen to the stupidest shit possible. South Park first movie soundtrack was listened to a lot in the 1999 Dysphoria tour that was mentioned on episode three. That movie that is I, fucking hilarious. For that reason, just because of the stupid songs, it was so worth it just to kill the brain who was listening to hair metal and all this other shit. Oh, yeah. Do you feel as if every time you're going to release a record in the future that you need some kind of one-upmanship? Or do you feel like the flow of what you will do within the music will just rest in whatever your influence is at the moment? AKA, are you going to bring French horns and all this nonsense because you feel like you have to push it, or are you good with what you got as long as it's honest and real? I'm never good with what I got. There's always <laughs> something else to get. And ever, I feel like most people would say number two because it does sound better. But I mean, yeah, we're good with what we got. But if if the next thing we have is what we got is what we already had, then we're not going to do it. And that'll so be you're that. always going to so, push it. You're always going to be pushing it. We're always going to push it. Does that mean it needs to just be adding more on top of what we did? No. I feel like we have hit a pinnacle of adding stuff on top. And I think that's what this record is. It's like my ultimate pipe dream fantasy of everything I wanted our records to be is this record. So where do you go from here? That's what we need to figure out. And we have some ideas of that. But if it's not something that's going to up the ante, to us in an exciting way, then we will stop doing the band. We have always said that. I mean, we've been saying that if we can't Hold come on. up with a record Hold that on. I feel like, you know, we're not, this isn't going to be like a heritage band, you know, that's going to travel you, around. I need you. I need you to break this down for me because two hours ago, you told me you made everybody not go to college and that yes. this band is going to be everything. <laughs> so the dichotomy is that, there's a clause in when this band would end. You need to tell me what this clause is and why. The clause is that if it's not better than the last thing we did, really better. Not like we convince ourselves it's better. Like we really fucking listen to it a thousand times and we don't feel it's better in our souls, then we'll break up. I mean, and now it'll be happen. It'll happen overnight. And I'll say so long and thanks for all the cheese and that'll be that. 
You are so fucking it. crazy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's no, pretty much it. I mean, on one hand, your entire shit is driven by just progression and fucking just a drive and excitement and creativity. And yet, in a simple fucking no, we can't get further. You're gonna smash it all to pieces. It's amazing. Well, everybody, I listen. Well, they, they, that's a fact. And they, you know, but we would have to be all on the same page. But we would be. I mean, they're, they're. I mean, they're, these motherfuckers are ready to pull the plug as soon as, as soon as I say. So they don't care. They, they're, you know, they they're, care. They care. They're, you're just, you're no, just, they, lo- you're they just, love it, just, but they're, they're grinded. They've grinded very hard and, and they're ready to keep grinding as long as there's something to grind to in a way that we enjoy. And that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, just trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's can we make a record that embodies what we want to hear and what we want to see? And we just did that. We literally just did it. And I'm really fucking proud of it. I think it has a lot of miles to go on it. And there's a lot of things we have coming up to continue to support it, even during this time. I think we're going to get in the mix for more things like, the Grammys and this and that kind of crap that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to the art, but it matters to the platform. And we're going to keep raising the platform of the art. And uh, I think that that's going to happen 100%. You know, we just hit another angle by releasing our uh, under the skin, which was like a quote unquote acoustic weird stripped down record live record, you know, so we're hitting it from every angle. When we run out of angles, we will stop that, that fucking moment. And I don't think you're, you're going to get. Of, I don't think you're going to run out of angles because you're constantly engrossing different ideas, and you're a contingent of like a group of humans with ideas. You're not stuck on one person. I feel like the concept that you're talking about is rested in when the creative player within the group taps out. But because you have so much influence and drive from all parties, it would take a lot for you guys to not be able to push the envelope because it's not one brain or two guys and everybody else just says, okay, let's do it. I, I find it hard. And I, and I would have to say that for everyone's sake, I think that it's going to be a while before the uh, creative juices go dry. I think that too, but know this. You're declaring code, or- code orange will not be a band that is writhing in uh obscurity this is a band that wants to grow that needs to grow like a fucking vampire it needs blood if that blood stops coming whether it's creatively whether it's people don't want to see it we will stop we will listen to that that hasn't happened the band so far has been a slow like a roller coaster uh upwards trajectory in a way that we really enjoy and that is what is exciting about it to us I'll never stop working with Eric, Joe, Dominic, and Reba, my best friends. But if the band runs its course, we'll say fuck, fuck you to everybody and peace out. And that's wow. that. I mean, that's all. That's always been the plan. And pull the fucking plug in a heartbeat. If it feels stale, if it feels like oh, people aren't getting it, people don't give a shit, then fuck them. That's basically been our our plot from minute one. So it ain't going to be, you're never going to see this band break up over fighting with each other or all kinds of other bullshit. But if we hit a wall in which we go, okay, which hasn't happened yet where we go, this is the wall. This is where we're at. This is, this is what's happening. And we know that in our hearts, which, which, which I really trust in them and myself and we'll stop and that'll be that. And we'll do some other cool shit. And we'll see you down the road whenever, when then, you know, 10 years later, everybody wants to fucking hear it all of a sudden. 
they were a very intense individual. And I knew that going into this, we were going to get down some dark paths. And <laughs> you have actually shocked me for the first time with that <laughs> because you're so driven and you put so much in. It's fucking beautiful in that you're able to say, if it's not at to this, I'm out. But I, I feel that what will happen is the byproduct will be not a new band, but something a different venture because everything you've done in the last two years involving this record and then this insane amount of production that we're not going to get into detail because you're doing shit 10 years ahead of everybody else and I don't want you to give up any secrets. But I could see you guys making your own fucking movies or you know scoring movies or something yes. crazy as a group. Because you have this collective talent, and you're and you're and you're doing shit that's just beyond the idea of what a metal band does, and beyond the idea of what musically and conceptually with metal bands try to do, which is basically sell a record, tour a record, write another one to sell, and, and your creative vibe and the, and the group vibe doesn't seem to allow you to not go further than the ideal band structure. Could you see yourselves actually producing something that is more like an actual, like a movie or something like that? Or is that not even been told? Yes. About? No, I, we, I definitely think we can. We've made, we've made, we've made things. Me and Shade uh, have started with the full uh, blessing of the rest of the group, a production quote unquote company, I guess, in which we are making animated visuals and Sonic stuff for other artists on a very low key level. Uh, mostly just doing it for ourselves. But uh, yeah, we, we could definitely get into that. But, you know, again, like the goal is this. If the people want this, we will keep doing this forever. Uh, we fucking love this. this. There will always be people that want this. But if the people want it, if the people want it in the way we want the people to want it, then we'll do it. If the people want it on a level that we do, that is not what we want, then we won't do it. That is our plug to pull. And that's the one card that we fucking have in this life. And it's not going to happen again because of anything internal. It's what the world wants to give back to what we're given. And that's pretty much that. So fucking intense. It's great. It's great. It's, it's everything that comes with talking to you is the positivity with the I don't give a fuck. And at the same time, you give so much of a fuck that you will just end the whole fucking thing. And it's, I don't get, I don't give a fuck what some motherfucker says, but I'm 100% in, I'm in connection and in contact with reality. And if when reality starts to hit you, which thank God it's not, you know, it's really, things are going honestly extremely well for us in the position that we're in with not being able to tour and this, that, and the third. Well, you, but, you really were, you guys jumped ahead of everybody. You guys really, I mean, I, I, we talked about this on the sunny episode. I don't know if you listened, but you struck at the perfect moment with the perfect timing to the point where my wife and I were sitting on our couch and I'm like, I got to see this code orange thing. And I love that you set the fucking tone months before all of your peers and everyone who's planning these now are following your path that you guys did because we're on the telephone. You and I remember you're like, I'm in some fucking Walmart parking lot. We got to figure out how to make this right. Cause we're not going to fucking give up. And I'm like, typical to you in that this like mad genius drive of, I know it's a positive. I mean, it's funny to think about you're in a Walmart parking lot and we're talking and you're like, we got to make this fucking work. And, and you know, I've got in it and I'm like, 
and in my head, I'm like, this is so fucking badass, whatever pulls off. And I remember telling Sonny, he's like, I don't know, man, we're going out there. It's going to be pretty crazy. And I'm like, this is code, man. Whatever you do is going to be some shit that's like five years or 10 years ahead of what everyone else is thinking about. Thank and I mean, like Tim Boer's company, Soundtown Media, started a live streaming thing. And there's all these people now going to be live streaming. Because, but you jumped ahead of everybody. In it. And it needs to be said that whilst your ideas are that if the fans aren't doing what you need them to do for what you're doing, you're going to leave. I have way too much invested in knowing that you are too fucking driven and you're too creative. Oh, and you're, fuck always yeah. gonna, you're always going to create the new goal and the new task and the new influence and the new world to explore. So whether the medium is the band or whether the new medium comes from the sum of all the efforts the band did, but it goes into a new world. I don't see you guys ever not all creating together. Yeah. And like, yeah. And that, that sentiment that I kind of said, because we're, you know, being off the cuff as friends in a vacuum don't sound too great, but really what I just mean by that is that we feel very in control of our art and our artistic destiny. You know, so as long as we're fulfilling that and feel good, we'll do it. Part of us feeling good is the excitement of the push forward. If that ceases to exist, we will stop doing it. You're not going to see us do the 10 years I Am King tour. You're not going to see us do the 10 years forever tour. It you ain't going to fucking happen. While you're listening uh, to this yeah. Merrick, you're not going to I mean, and, and watch, watch me in four years broke as hell trying to do that tour. But still, I'm saying we're not right now. We'll see what the fuck happens. You guys are going to start learning like the Jim Henson puppets. And it yeah, we're like, going to start so, doing pu- puppeteering. What you're going to do I mean, puppets, God, but it's going to be like yeah. Matrix meets puppets. And it's going to be the weirdest but coolest shit ever. Basic, wait till you fucking you think the last streams were at. Wait till you see this next one. It's in the year fucking 3000. So it we'll come, see what's going on. Unless I'm unless I'm unless I'm mistaken, uh it's the twenty-third, right? Or am I mistaken the date? Our next our next one, our next one is gonna be on Halloween. But I'm really not supposed to say that at all. Well, I you guess. should say it because this airs October twenty second. All right, cool. Then it'll be out. Halloween, call back inside the glass. It's about to be us playing in a number of 3D projected environments. That's really all that I can say about it. Um, we're gonna have it's Jesus Peace. Star Trek. It's insane. We're gonna it's Star Trek. We're gonna have Jesus Peace play. We're gonna have Year of the Knife play. We're gonna have Machine Girl play. You will know this now by by then. And I think it's gonna be something that no one's been able to do with this uh type of technology before. So let's see what we can do. Hey man, I I'm inspired by you just talking. Every time we talk, I feel like I'm fucking lazy. I haven't done enough. I haven't learned enough. Oh, and no. I haven't driven myself to do more. And everybody who listens to this now, as we are closing in on three hours, has to say the same thing. And it's so easy to compartmentalize and say, oh, a band is a band. And, you know, there's not always every band doesn't follow what other bands do. And this, the, the moral of this story and the reason why I had to have you on the podcast was to just illustrate just how different and unique the code is from the fucking gang perspective of how you guys all kind of like form like Voltron. And yet at the same time, the shared drive, the shared vision, it's, it's completely amazing to see because 
you're I'm around and expose the bands where it's like I don't even like that guy anymore. You know, oh, I don't even see that guy till we have to get on stage. And that's just never been the case. And I just wanted to tell you that you guys have something special and you guys are special because of all of what you guys do together as a group. Not the music part. It's the off music part. It's the friendships. It's the creativity. It's the blind trust. Like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, I'm not going to college. I'm going to do fucking Code Orange. And then most of you guys are training jujitsu now. It's like, yeah. it's like, it's, it's nothing I've ever seen before. And I hope for your sake that it continues. Um, we're going to wrap you, this, We're going to wrap this up with you telling me the biggest regret that you've ever had with Code Orange. Biggest regret. Um, Come on, dig deep. Honestly, the only the only regret that I have is at times hanging on to some bitterness that I wish I was able to shed. And uh, we're working to fix that. So I have no fucking regrets. We Good. move forward. That's it. Uh, as long as, you know, the only regret I could really ever have would be if I did something to hurt one of my you know, brothers or sisters in this band. And you know what? Now saying that there have been times where I have done that in interpersonal uh, ways, you know, because of the intensity of the situation. And I have regrets on, on a personal level with things like that. But uh, in terms of the band and our decisions and what we've done, uh, we're still together, baby. We're still moving. Fuck everyone. So we're good. I feel great. Jamie Morgan, code orange, formerly code orange kids. Uh, purple belt in jiu-jitsu who will hopefully one day be a black belt and choking people out on tour but yes more importantly one of the most uh creative human beings that i'm lucky to call a friend shout out your social medias tell people how to contact you if they wish to engage in these conversations further Okay, well, thank you very much. First of all, I love you. You're my brother. Uh, at Code Orange T O T H, check our shit. Uh, you know what it is? True Believer Jiu Jitsu, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you want to get your ass whooped, come hang out. And also, if you want to learn <laughs> how to defend yourself, come hang out. It's a great time. Uh, black and blue roll. If any of y'all want to step up, let's hit that next year. I'll it's happening, too, Joe. We're gonna. I'm going. We're going to have to do it. Let's go. And uh, I really appreciate everything that came out of the symbiotic relationship between this article and Code Orange, but more importantly, all the great hours we spent talking. And I feel like this, this recording is a great example of some of the many hours that you and I spent on the phone. I love yes. hearing from you. I wish we could hang more and I'm going to make an effort to come out the true believer with hard Carl and some of the boys. Nice. And um, send my love to everybody. And for those who are doubting Halloween, October 31st, I'm telling you, Code is doing some shit that literally is ahead of the fucking curve by far on any live stream situation. Uh, is no. it just your social media for them to check that out? Yeah, uh, we're, we're still working it out. But yeah, just follow our social media at Code Orange T-O-T-H. And like I said, we got all, some great bands. Jesus Peace, my fucking young boys. Love them. You're the knife. Same thing. No, they're your your guys. Machine Girl, cool, crazy band from here. Having some um some of the young guys on there. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's gonna feel more like a this ain't just gonna feel like you're sitting there watching a band play in the garage. It's gonna be a cinematic, fun, entertaining event that you're gonna feel really great about having watched. So 
check it out if you can and uh shout out to all the bands grinding throughout this whole thing regardless of anything i've said i got nothing but respect for everybody so all up all right man love you be good man bye-bye all right see you man. that was a real fun one to do in fact i mean there was a lot of give and take a little bit of ball busting but I really hope that you enjoyed listening to Jamie and us go back and forth. He's a very dedicated human being and his drive and his motivation and his strategic planning all play a huge role in what those guys do. But obviously, as he said, you got to give props to Reba and everybody else who really are also running full steam and they're a full team. It's not just one person. Maybe later on we'll get the whole gang in here. But it was great to hear Jamie talk about the old days. Once again, as we started, I'll finish off. Streaming October 31st at 4 p.m. was the live stream we were talking about. Back Inside the Glass, an all-immersive environmental experience putting Code Orange at the center of an awe-inspiring virtual landscapes where they will deliver an intense live stream performance in a way never before seen. That's never before. No one's done this yet. Kicking off the show, Machine Girl, You're the Knife, who will be playing their awesome new record on Pure Noise, the internal incarceration record, completely in full, and Jesus Peace, who will also be playing a brand new live set and all these sets that the bands who aren't code will also have a cinematic twist. As you heard from him, they're going all out. And this is something that is going to be a very awesome experience. And you're going to see people follow suit once they see the uh, mold to which these guys have now set for everybody else. And they've raised the bar once again. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Um, I don't really do the best job of saying this, but, you know, if you're an Apple person, do this subscribe, comment, rate us thing. If you are a Spotify and Stitcher and anyone else, just make sure you're following us. And uh, in the future, we're going to be having, I guess, some more ads and hit me up on the social medias directly and tell me if you don't think I should do a Patreon, if you think it's cool, tell me I fucking suck. Just tell me something, people. Next week is not diverging into a different direction because I see the parallels, just as I see so many common threads within all these podcast episodes. But we're going to be talking to Jay Travis Brooks Sr., who is a person that had you been at This is Hardcore, you would have seen the guys out there in the full suits of armor punching and kick each other. Jay is a testament to DIY and full culture where he came from the Society for the Creative Anachronisms, which is like a medieval LARP, into being the person who brought a bunch of American fighters to Europe for the first time in the Battle of the Nations. He would start his own business as the Knights Hall, think like a medieval dojo, where they train for these medieval competitions and battles in Nashua, New Hampshire. And, I mean, it's really punk rock. I can't believe you get a bunch of guys together. They go out, you know, first in Canada, then to Europe. And then they build a whole league, like an American league around these 4-on-4 and 5-on-5 fights where they full power, steal weapons, 
smash the shit out of each other and knock each other over, and it's sick. And his story's incredible. And with it being close to Halloween, I thought it'd be great. And I want you guys to check it out. Um, you know the deal. Thank you so much. Take care.